BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Box Canyon. If you know Los Angeles or have seen movies set around Los Angeles, you can probably picture it. The dusty orange ground, the cliffs rising up to meet a deep blue sky, trees and bushes dotting the landscape. About 30 miles from downtown LA, it is smaller and narrower than a river canyon with steep walls and only two points of access, leaving it insulated from the rest of the world. Little corner of nature on the edge of a sprawling urban area. The Rocky Hideaway in Southern California started out as a place for a weekend getaway for a lot of Los Angelinos, but its legacy would be cemented later on when it became the home base for a doomsday cult, the Fountain of the World cult, also called the WKFL Fountain of the World, standing for Wisdom, Knowledge, Faith, and Love, or just WKFL Fountain. A brochure from the mid-1950s would describe the group like this. Located in the beautiful Santa Susana Mountains overlooking the San Fernando Valley, and near Chatsworth Lake and the picturesque Simi Valley lives this intriguing group of people wearing flowing robes of various colors, walking in bare feet, and having long hair. Nursing, electronics, carpentry, photography, music, art, and drama are but a few of the talents found among these joyful people. And those things would be found there, but so would a lot of other weird shit. Started in the late 1940s by, by a man, founded by a man who called himself Krishnaventa. He called himself a lot of stuff, actually. The commune would, well, maybe not thrive, but certainly exist for decades. The Fountain's members gathered to live together, pool their property, and above all else, sing the praises of their master, Krishnaventa. These long-haired and constantly barefoot members often helped to fight wildfires in the area. Neighboring communities mostly approved of them. They were weird, but they were humanitarians, helpful strange, mostly good people. And mostly they were good people, except for their leader. The master, not a good dude. Within the cult's monastery, Venta preached about an impending World War III, fought between communist Russia and capitalistic America, which would coincide with the race war. In the end, a godless Russia would prevail for a little while, but then Venta and his followers would step in and save the day. They would take back the world, 
with love and kindness rather than guns. If that sounds kind of like what Charles Manson taught his followers, there is a reason for that. Manson visited the Fountain's compound numerous times, even tried to take it over. This cult definitely influenced his vision of Helter Skelter. And the Fountain's leader, Chris Naventa, may have been crazier than Charles Manson, but he wouldn't see the same end. No languishing in prison for this guy, though his multiple crimes certainly would have landed him there one day. Instead, the cult's first incarnation would come to a quick and very dramatic end in the early hours of December 10th, 1958. So what happened? What crazy shit did Krishnaventa get his followers to believe about him? And how did it all come crumbling down the fountain right now on another cult, cult, cult edition of Time Suck? This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks, and welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Dan Cummins, Suck Nasty, the Master Sucker, Cult Enthusiasts, Random Knowledge Hoarder, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, Hail Lucifina, praise be to Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M, the four pillars of the Suckverse. Just one very quick announcement this week. Thrown back to a fan favorite with merch, re-releasing the popular Knowledge and Truth design from a few years ago in a couple new colors. Available on a t-shirt as well as two wall art variants and a night and day mug featuring both light and dark designs. All available at badmagicmerch.com. And that's it. And now we're going to return to another cult, cult, cult topic within the, uh, or with the little known fountain of the world cult. Though not nearly as well known as many of its more murderous cousins, the fountain uh, is fascinating especially because of the bizarre backstory and prophecy concocted up by its leader, a man who called himself Krishna Venta, or uh, often the, the master Krishna Venta. Today, we'll look at Los Angeles before and during the time of Krishna, before delving into how this group worked, what they believed, and then we'll get into all the nitty-gritty details in the timeline. Because the cult doesn't have an academic book written about them, a few chapters and books on cults from the 1960s mostly, even though this cult peaked in the 1950s, uh, we've had to rely on some different sources for this episode. Sources like, uh, you know, some old newspaper articles, advertisements, cult members' diaries, books written by people, uh, especially one book written by someone who was there. Sometimes these sources gave conflicting dates or ages uh, of people. We uh, we did our best to put together what seems like the most likely story, and it is an insane story. With such an ending, such a big ending. Uh, very excited to tell it. Uh, Los Angeles is a place that's been home to a lot of cults. Uh, I haven't crunched the numbers, but it has to be the cult capital of America, historically, if not the world. We've covered a lot of L.A. area cults here before, and most of these cults formed in the 1960s and 70s, like the Source Family cults, Ballin' Baby, right? the Manson Family, the People's Temple, which was actually headquartered in San Francisco, but operated uh, a large church at Alvarado and Hoover in L.A., and as you recall from the uh, People's Temple episode, it, its headquarters shifted around a fair amount. Uh, so many cults born out of the counterculture revolution, but cults, so many cults already existed prior to the counterculture in and around L.A. A half century before the dawn of the counterculture in 1913, an observer remarked, of, uh, remarked on Los Angeles's tendency towards quackery, fattists and montebanks, spiritualists, mediums and astrologists. Phrenologists, palmists, and all other breeds of esoteric windjammers. Whole buildings are devoted to occult and outlandish orders. 
Mazdazen clubs, yogi sects, homes of truth, cults of cosmic fluidists, astral planners, Emmanuel movers, Roshacrucians, Roshacrucians perhaps, and other boozy transcendentalists. And all of this was before Scientology, also through its mad hat in the ring. By 1913, the uh, Zoroastrian, I thought I had the, uh, derived Mazdazen movement. (laughs) I think it's Zoroastrian. Oh man, it's a very ancient, very, very, very old religion, but not uh, very popular today. Zoroastrian derived Mazdazen movement. There we go. Which combined worshiping the sun with breathing exercises and dieting. Uh, a revival of a 6th century offshoot of Zor- Zoroastrianism managed to attract an estimated 14,000 followers. The New York Times would describe the group as a cult of sun worshipers who fasted and engaged in other methods of self-torture to drive out devils. They sound fun. Uh, this belief system doesn't seem to be practiced as a religion currently, at least not by any known sect of people from what I can tell on the web. Few people mostly in Canada do practice an adapted form of it that sounds more like a a way to meditate than anything resembling a, a religious system. Uh, theosophy had also taken hold in LA in the first half of the 20th century. The uh, Crotona Theosophical Settlement was founded in Hollywood by Albert P. Warrington in 1911, named for the ancient mystical school of Pythagoras. It would uh, relocate to the Ojai Valley the following year. Still around, uh, barely it seems, located just off of State Route 33, the Crotona Institute holds regular classes and workshops on theosophy, maintains an extensive library on the occult and has a small bookstore. And I'm kind of, and I'm guessing on Crotona as far as pronunciation. I can't find anybody saying it on the web. Uh, Warrington would write about this settlement later in his life saying the hills of Crotona where the temple was and the lotus pond and the vegetarian cafeteria. There were several smaller tabernacles as well. A metaphysical library, a Greek theater where the light of Asia was being played. And numerous dwellings cut into the hillside above and below the winding road. Crotona was one of the most beautiful spots on the planet and a highly magnetized spiritual center. This is way before all the counterculture. L.A. full of all kinds of interesting beliefs and new agey spiritualist movements long before those cults of the 60s showed up. Courses were taught by uh, Crotona Theosophical Settlement instructors and subjects like Esperanto, an artificial language constructed in 1887 by a Polish occultish, uh, occultist intended for use as an international second language, the esoteric interpretations of music and drama, and the human aura. So, you know, lots of really useful stuff that will enrich your life in uh, meaningful and practical ways. Uh, even people in the 1920s, an era of relative liberation in the form of shorter skirts for women and free-flowing alcohol and speakeasies, people noticed that L.A. seemed just a little more liberated than just about everywhere else. In 1926, H.L. Mencken, popular American journalist, essayist, uh, oh my gosh, satirist uh, and cultural critic regarding the popularity of unusual belief systems stated that there were more morons collected in Los Angeles than in any other place on earth. The osteopaths, chiropractors, and other such quacks had long marked and occupied it. It swarmed with swamis, spiritualists, Christian scientists, crystal gazers, and the allied necromancers. By 1930, there were said to be three or four hundred cults in Southern California alone, appealing to a total audience of a hundred thousand or so people, way more than I expected. New sects grew rapidly, influenced by mystical traditions from all over the world. By the time Krishnaventa and the Fountain showed up in the 40s, uh, they weren't some radical anomaly 
in the LA area, they were kind of part of the new normal. Christian Aventa is one of many active cult leaders, well at home in the occult landscape of Los Angeles. Like many other cults at the time, he drew on Christian teachings and would claim to be Jesus, also incorporated aspects of Hinduism, beginning with calling himself Krishna or the master and talking about he as Christ had been in India several hundreds of years ago. In his 1958 book, California Cult, author and cult expert, H.D. Dorman would talk about how L.A. had plenty of people ready and willing to receive the kind of messages men like Krishnaventa were selling them. Dorman said that the typical believer of a fringe religion was someone who prides himself in his freedom from bigotry. His aim, he will tell you, is to obtain the truth. He knows something about the Lemurians, the Rosicrucians, the Technocratic, the Mormons, the Anglo-Israelites, I am, New Thought, Unity, Theosophy, Yoga, Hermetics, Metaphysics, Pyramidology, Spiritualism, the Ohasp Bible, Faith Healing, Flying Saucers, and the latest metaphysical innovations, selecting what seemed to him to be pertinent tidbits of knowledge, he adds them to his stock of cultic convictions. Krishnaventa was mixing all kinds of shit together like that. And no matter how crazy and nonsensical his teachings were, they consistently found an audience, right? People who just, you know, convinced themselves that they got it. I, I get it. I get what he's saying. Uh, Dorman was talking about the same shit in 1958 when that book came out that I've been talking about the last few years here. How these cults always mutate out of religious belief systems, existing ones. How their leaders take languages, uh, you know, or language familiar to many of their followers and then add and twist that shit to develop some new truth that is really just the same old shit repackaged to serve their own selfish ends. I think I would have loved to go out drinking with H.T. Uh, Dorman. Now let's get into some of the cult's structure and teachings before examining the cult's rise and fall in the timeline. Impossible to assign exact dates to a lot of the ever-evolving beliefs that this cult possessed, so easier just to kind of list them out here. One of the only comprehensive sources that exists regarding the fountain, in the world, uh, fountain of the world cult's beliefs is a book on Amazon called Spiritual Teachings and Biography of Master Krishnaventa, written in 2008 by John Fisher. And it provides a lot of good info. Uh, we probably wouldn't have done this topic if that book didn't exist, but the info is certainly biased. The author was raised in the cult. And John seems to greatly play up the good aspects of the cult and perhaps leave out some of the negative. Like you can see this in his uh, introduction when he writes, Members of the fountain wore robes, went barefoot, grew long hair, and the women wore scarves. The WKFL, uh, FOTW, was dedicated to humanitarianism first and spiritual growth second. The primary mission of the fountain was to gather the 144,000 elect and to prepare for the end days. The fountain also provided community services through a soup kitchen, food bank, rescue mission, free thrift store, and emergency aid center. Members also fought fires, solicited for funds door-to-door, rescued flood victims, and provided aid to migrant workers. Uh, a lot of this stuff, we don't have records of like them doing all of this, so we won't be covering some of the stuff in the timeline, but some of the other stuff we will. Uh, Master Krishnaventa gave a series of over 70 lectures during 1947, 1948, all of which were printed for the general public. Although MKV did get into some rather wild topics, the man's migration from another planet, <laughs> like his migration from another planet, his primary message was love ye one another. Yeah, well, MKV also fucked a whole bunch of his cult members, maybe raped some of them, maybe molested some of them, definitely abused their trust in him, gambled away a lot of their money and more. 
John leaves that part of the master's legacy out, but that's okay. Luckily, we found other sources who did not leave it out. Uh, however, the cult did do the humanitarian things that John talked about. In fact, when a flight once crashed into a hill nearby the compound, the fountain's members were some of the first on the scene. I, I think the very first on the scene, pulling burning bodies out of the wreckage and tending to the survivors. And we will cover that super surreal moment in history in the timeline. They also fought a lot of fires, as John mentioned. People living in the canyons where the cult was headquartered uh, were required to cut a fire break around their buildings. And if they couldn't, then uh, the fire department would do it for a fee. The foundation did it for free. They would help their neighbors do it. And the fire department generally trusted them to know their way around and didn't require uh, them to evacuate when fires were in the area like they did with many of the other locals. While we don't have exact numbers, no master membership list, it seems that based on multiple accounts, most of the cult's members were women. As John puts it, we had lots of women in the cult. Most of them, like my mom, were unskilled workers who didn't have a husband or welfare. I don't think a high percentage of single women needing a little help in life were recruited out of the goodness of the master's heart. I think he was definitely thinking with his dick here. And I'll go over, you know, proof of that. Uh, there were also a decent amount of kids in the cult. According to a brochure, the cult would hand out during recruiting efforts in the 50s. A very active program is available to the youth. The LTU, Love, Truth, Understanding. Made up of children from the ages of 9 to 18 years. Constantly amazes onlookers by its ability to maintain a just jurisdiction of its members. These, these places always have the sweetest sounding acronyms, right? For what they're doing. Love, truth, and understanding. How could anything bad come from an organization focused on teaching kids love, truth, and understanding? That's a way better acronym related to cult kids than, say, uh, GIF. Grooming, indoctrination, and fucking. I'm sorry, what was the name of the kids' club again? GIF. And, and what did that stand for? Uh, uh, grooming, indoctrination, and fucking. Wow, I thought that's what you said. Not even trying to hide it. Uh, the pamphlet continued and said, uh, a board of directors conducts its activities. This board is elected by the youth membership from its own ranks and is responsible for discipline, work, assignments, hobbies, and good administration. The instructors in public schools attended by these LTU members have acknowledged leading students and outstanding athletes among Fountain Youth. All right? Hell yeah. Uh, get your kid in our cult and we'll turn them into the cream of the crop. Cult kids. Always crushing it in school and in sports. Everyone knows that. Uh, the pamphlet also talked about preparation for a world takeover of sorts. The fountain is constantly training its members for a worldwide expansion of their communal way of life. Leaders from India, South America, Italy, and Sweden have expressed a desire for such communities to be started in their countries by the WKFL Fountain of the World. All branches so formed in foreign countries will be called founts, and members will be dedicated to the communal way of life, brother love, humanitarian service work, and the living of the laws of the good brotherhood. Well, uh, don't let that part fool you. There is uh, no record of this cult gaining a foothold in any country outside of the U.S. If they had any international founts, they were never big enough to need more than a small apartment to hold all of their members. Uh, the, the, the leader, uh, Master Krishna, big-time liar, and he would, uh, he, he would not be welcomed into a lot of these countries he just talked about. So how was the cult structured? Well, uh, according again to the cult's intro brochure, a board of directors governed and administrated and administered the temporal functions of the cult. The majority of the members lived communal lives, performing basic tasks like farming and cooking. At the time of the pamphlet's writing, they raised goats and poultry, grew their own vegetables. They uh, self-sustained, or at least they claimed to have self-sustained. I don't think they really did that. I think they were sustained mostly by new members giving the cult all of their shit 
at least during the life of the master. Uh, John wrote the following about their LA area headquarters. The 23 acres was very peaceful, warm, dry, and quiet. We used rocks taken from the washes around Los Angeles or the Los Angeles basin to construct the buildings, ditches, and walkways. And that part's pretty cool. They did seem to, and they seemed to use like some local trees and stuff, they, like what was around them on their property to, to build their structures. And they did build some cool constructors. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Visitors to the compound were required to check in with the member. Uh, a woman named Sister Mural, Mural was that member at the time the pamphlet was written, who would give them an introduction and then take them on a tour. Visitors were free to roam the grounds, talk to members. Members could take trips into the outside world also at any time. Uh, that part doesn't seem too cult-like when you first go over it. But when you dig in, these members, well, they didn't have a dollar to their name after joining the cult. So highly unlikely they were going to leave if they did a little roaming. And there really wasn't time to do much roaming because the master kept them very busy and heavily discouraged them exploring the outside world, at least on their own. Prospective members were admitted first as associates on probation, a period that could last for three months. During these three months, they were required to study 67 lectures written by Krishna Venta, available for a dollar each. Read, read, read. Get so fucking confused. You'll believe anything the master tells you. Then if neither they nor the higher-ups objected, if they weren't problems who were riling up members and asking too many questions about shit, well, then they could become apostles. But, and uh, this is such a big but, they weren't fully admitted as apostles until they turned over everything they owned to the treasury. Cult, cult, cult. In exchange for this donation, members were promised salvation and the good life by becoming unified with one another spiritually, mentally, and physically. Ah, fuck yeah, bro. Noise. Uh, early donors, like a woman named Ethel Ray, gave 20,000 bucks when she joined. Uh, a woman listed in sources only as Sister Felipe uh, gave $5,000 when she joined. Some follower listed as Betty gave three grand. Jean gave five grand. Martin gave a thousand. A man named Usamu gave 2,000 and so on. And once you gave your money, well, now you're officially part of the community. You're in the inner circle. Later, if you became dissatisfied with your life there, well, you could leave, right? Uh, no hard feelings. But if you did leave, you were never going to see any of that money again. No refunds, as Krishnaventa put it in Lecture 31. Some people have made a big deal out of the requirement that members donate all of their personal possessions to the fountain. The brochures of the fountain tried to warn people interested in joining our commune that they were expected to make a 100% commitment to a spiritual life. However, many people decided that the lifestyle was not for them and their property was returned if it was available. Obviously, donations of cash were used to support the cost of running the fountain and were not refundable. This would be like donating money to a church to fix a bell tower. And then when you lose your job, you ask the church for a refund. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> kind of like that he writes ain't in there. And I love how much he plays what he's doing down. Look, some people are making a big stink about our little, you have to give us literally all your own stuff to join, thingamajig. Why? Churches, nonprofits, universities, they ask for donations. No one's mad about that. Uh, yeah, well, Master, there's there's uh, less anger there because those other organizations don't ask for literally everything. That's what the big deal is. You have to give everything. Those who did give over all their money would be quickly absorbed into communal life, working tirelessly every day to support the fountain, right? What a deal. Typical cult compound deal. Give us everything you own, and then we'll give you way more to do than any job you've ever had. And not pay you. Ha <laughs> ha, yay! Uh, at night, the group would have communal dinners along with singing and praying, you know, so that's good. You don't get a check. You don't have any assets anymore, but you get bread and soup and a bunch of shitty songs and prayers. 
A big dining area could hold 40 to 50 people at a time. Members would have an irregular diet. It was basically whatever the cult could scrounge up at the time. Apparently, it's mostly surplus macaroni, flour, and butter, and maybe some veggies. So that's that's cool. Uh, of course, the master had a private pantry stocked with only the finest foods. On Saturday nights and Sunday afternoons, the dining tables would be moved outdoors. The compound's main hall would be set up for sermons. Saturdays and Sundays were when the cult would play, uh, you know, perform plays. I wish we had a copy of some of the old scripts. I guess most of the plays were about some moral lesson. A back area of the dining hall by the fireplace was used as a Bible study room where John uh, said he once sat down with Charles Manson and taught him our weird version of Christianity. And weird is right. And we'll touch on Manson's encounter with the uh, group in the timeline. Members' uh, sex lives were controlled as they often are in cults. They weren't allowed to have sex except in marriage since the master uh, promoted chastity. Didn't practice what he preached, of course, but he promoted it. Also so weird, members were only allowed to marry on the 29th of March, the birthday of Krishnaventa. And each marriage was spiritual. So you could also be married to someone else in the outside world uh, as long as you just didn't visit them for any sins of the flesh. Like you'd have your marriage, you could like leave somebody and not get legally separated or legally divorced when you join the cult. And then the only marriages that really counted in the cult were ones where Venta, you know, uh, decreed them a, a spiritual marriage. Uh, and this is getting a little complicated, right? Only married on the leader's birthday. All the crazy rules that people end up believing come from God continually blow my mind. Uh, in junior high, I was banned from a church youth group for asking too many questions. I asked a lot of questions because God's rules didn't make sense to me as they were taught by this group. And over 30 years later, those rules still do not make sense to me. I often wonder if they truly make sense to anyone. Uh, eventually in the mid-1950s, not only would March 29th be a holy day, but several of the days before and after would all be rolled up together and turned into a little cult festival of sorts that would celebrate Easter, Christmas, uh, and the new year all at once. Because why not? Uh, Starting in 1956, March 29th would be the first of several days of packed programming with the public invited to witness the spectacle. The events would kick off on or uh, on the 29th. Sometimes there'd be little mini events, I guess, before, but the main event kicks off on the 29th with the crucifixion cosplay of sorts. More on that in the timeline, followed by hours of ceremonies, uh, rededication for married couples, uh, youth dedication and more. On the 30th, several events like the March of the Grave at 10 a.m. and the Path of Fire at noon would take place, followed by the cleansing from all prejudices two hours later. Sounds fucking sick, right? Clean those prejudices. Open your mind so we can fill it with so much more shit. Uh, Lecture given by Krishna would top that off, that day's activities off, followed by hours of singing, dancing, candlelight devotions. Uh, March 31st would be dedicated to testimonials a sermon about the 144,000 elect community singing candlelight devotions. Uh, finally, on the last day, April 1st, the master would act like he was about to sacrifice a virgin on a big pagan altar and then yell, ha, April fools, JK, everybody. Ha, not going to sacrifice any virgins. Uh, by the way, all this uh, silly shit is, uh, is made up. Bunch of bullshit I made up to get my dick sucked and not have to work a regular job. No, I wish you would say that. No, the event would be closed out with some kind of resurrection ceremony, uh, New Year's celebration and a banquet. And all this done mostly to glorify the master, Krishnaventa. So what are they wearing while this shit's going on? Well, like Nexium, members wore colors that let others know what their rank was in the group. The master wore yellow robes. Green was for students. Blue indicated that the wearer could administer medicine. <laughs> By the way, one guy claimed that a bunch of people died in this cult from not getting product, uh, proper medical treatment. So I don't know how good the uh, blue robe people were. I don't think they were doctors. Brown was for kitchen help. 
And Gray was for, quote, those willing to take responsibility. Just That's just it. Just for those willing to take responsibility. So whatever the fuck that means. Also, regarding how they looked, uh, hair was, <laughs> was encouraged just in general, at least for men. The men's and boys were never to shave, right? The, the bigger beard, the better. The women would wear none habits. Also, uh, were not able, you know, allowed to cut their hair. So they had long hair. You can find pics online of various members and the master. Uh, and they, yeah, they look like a fucking cult, big time. Like a, like a pic of several members. Uh, you know, if, if it showed up when you first searched, what does a cult look like? And you see this picture, you'd be like, yeah, that's about what I was thinking. Uh, so what do these fuckers believe? What was the master's theology? It's so convoluted. The first tenet was that he had no age. Since time started, I have been with the world since the beginning. There can be only one Highlander. No, that is over. You just don't turn it off. Uh, the master would say that he landed in the U.S. March 29th, 1932. Before that, he'd been dicking around in the Himalayas. Just, you know, meditating with yetis and shit. Uh, he'd been sent down from heaven to India centuries earlier as a reincarnation of Jesus Christ to labor amongst the Indians. <laughs> and this will contradict other things he says, but whatever. You know, like most cult leaders, you know, <laughs> he just says a lot of shit that directly contradicts a lot of other shit he's has said or, is, you know, fuck, he's going to say just often, sometimes in the same sermon. Here's how he explained that he was Jesus. He said, there is only one Jesus Christ. There cannot be two. In me is the intelligence and sacred personality of this one. This is my body, but the eye inside of it is the eye of Jesus. Therefore, I am Jesus, my body, his soul, if you want to put it that way. Apparently, his body was convincing enough for many of his followers to believe he was Jesus. He was almost six foot two, fairly athletic build, had long wavy hair and a beard. I found some pics uh, where he legit does look exactly like paintings of Jesus I remember seeing in church as a kid, right? White, historically impossible for him to look like that Jesus. Uh, he also had an abnormally uh, good memory, which he used to accurately recite various scriptures. That ability uh, caused, uh, you know, convinced a lot of people that he was the real deal. This ability also has helped out David Koresh, tons of other cult leaders over the years. Also, like a lot of cult leaders, he borrowed theology from various religions. He had read and reread the Book of Mormon and founder Joseph Smith became something of a guiding light for Krishna Venta. He especially liked Smith's revelation about the order of uh, Melchizedek or holy priesthood. Where God had restored to earth uh, this order for use uh, by the Mormons, according to LDS theology, to continue to receive revelations. Uh, most Christians believe that Jesus is the Messiah spoken of in Psalms uh, 110.4 as a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus playing the role of king priest once and for all. The Melchizedek priesthood and LDS doctrine supposed to be a sort of holiness on par with Jesus and every age, you know, needed a better spiritual leader to explain God's concepts to people in a way that would make them understand it according to contemporary ideas about science and nature and so on. So that's why the order continues. All these spiritual leaders, part of the order of Melchizedek. As part of this lineage, Krishnaventa therefore had the same authority as Jesus to lead humanity out of the wilderness and onto a righteous path. But also he was Jesus. Again, he's going to say a lot of different things. For a while, he was new Jesus. And then he was old Jesus who had never left earth or a Jesus who maybe left sometimes but came back regularly. Uh, something else in early Mormonism uh, that may have appealed to the master was polygamy. His second wife, Ruth Alice Britzel, would be an ex-Mormon and he would uh, borrow heavily from Mormon theology. Though, of course, twisting it in ways uh, you know, that served him. He would create his own origin story. What was that origin story? <laughs> it kind of changes, but uh, here's what it ended up being before this guy abruptly stopped being a cult leader. His ending, by the way, so satisfying. Uh, in the master Krishna event of theology, the first savior is Adam. 
With Eve, he operated as the head priest of the order of the Melchizedek, set up especially for him. I would hope it would be set up for him. I mean, I would hope he'd be the head priest. He was the only guy on earth. So who the fuck else would it be, according to this theology? But of course, Adam and Eve, you know, get led away from the Garden of Eden by the snake, by Satan. So they fail in their mission of being super holy and godly and stuff. According to Krishna, man chose to trifle with the power of God. He reasoned that with the knowledge of both good and evil at his command as a working basis, he could accept, reject, or combine thoughts according to his desire and thus work out his own pattern of progression, one like unto God's. Thus man aimlessly combined the good with the evil, the pure with the impure, and so he became the first fruits of all his adulterations, a being without stable foundation, without definite purpose, and without ultimate goal. He used spiritual laws for material gain. He cultivated an extreme liking for good and evil. He gazed upon the sun, moon, stars, and the earth in all its natural form. This was good. He produced an artificial semblance of God's plan and set it before all men. So deceptive was this adulteration that humanity became absorbed in its iniquity. So Adam and Eve are out. And now we humans, most of us, were all sinful and shit. And when Adam died, Enoch and Methuselah became the new priest savior people. Uh, but then both of them fucked it too. Years later, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, they would take over one after another. But these lazy fuckers gave up when the people who thought their material understanding of the world was better than the priest prophet guys just became too obnoxious to deal with. The master's uh, doctrine would hold under successive leaderships, the spiritual order gradually declined and disappeared. Okay, so then the next savior is Jesus and he was the best savior, resourceful, determined, eloquent, and brilliant, but he still got crucified. However, the good uh, he did on earth lived after him. And for the first time in history, men began to live by a moral code uh, that's definitely not true. Men had moral codes before Jesus, but whatever. Uh, Jesus, priest, prophet, good uh, God guy, then sealed off all the previous orders of the Melchizedek and authorized a new order, but it wouldn't last. Within a few centuries, men went back to their wicked ways. Uh, they were doing that when he was alive too, but whatever. Then the fountain doctrine held that Christ came again and entered the body of Constantine at Constantinople around the time of the fourth crusade, around 1202, 1203, 1204, uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Methinks the master may have not been the biggest history buff since Constantine lived during the 4th century uh, CE, not the 13th century. Krishna said that Constantine Jesus, who was apparently almost 900 years old now, got really, really mad when illiterate crusaders destroyed what was left of the world library at Constantinople. And he was so mad, he just fucking bounced. He left the earth. Uh, Krishna's version of Christ sounds, uh, sounds like a, a pouty little bitch. Right, just ah! I'm so mad at you guys. You burned my library. It's my favorite library. I'm taking my last couple of books and I'm headed home to heaven. Out. Uh, Christ then returned next as Krishna Venta, maybe, but maybe also never left, and maybe he'd always been around as Christ. I feel like when he gave these sermons, uh, not a lot of people were taking notes, as in nobody. And, and when people read them, they were not allowed to have pencils and underline shit and ask questions. There was not a lot of hey, wait a minute. This is really confusing going on. According to the Fountain Doctrine, this beloved one does not always bear the name Christ. That is the particular one used exclusively 1900 years ago. Uh, throughout the ages, he has made his advent unto many names, but always he is the same great principle, the second of creation and the first unto the Father, the only begotten Son of God expressing in the flesh. He makes himself like unto man in appearance, but unlike man, he is in the world, but not of it. He comes always to assist humanity and to appear out of its self-imposed bondage. 
Okay, so that's that's actually, you know, fairly traditional, uh, you know, doctrine there. But then he gets real fucking weird. He had some extraterrestrial shit to all this. Krishna said he was born on the planet Neophrates 240,000 years ago. And that was never a, a planet, by the way. There's never a planet like that. Uh, this planet purportedly occupied the same orbit as Earth does currently. So it's where Earth is now. Uh, and Krishna alleged it was humanity's first home. But then Neophrates started fucking orbiting differently. And I guess, you know, the circle just gets got tighter and tighter and it starts getting too close to the sun and becomes uh, uninhabitable. There was actually two suns. Uh, according to the master of fleet of great rocket ships, each more than a mile long and capable of carrying 35,000 people, uh, then set off to colonize the dark planet that would become Earth. And what happened to those old spaceships? Well, that's never really made clear. <laughs> details. Uh, who cares about details? Just believe. Cult, cult, cult. And all of this history was recorded in the Holy Beeble. Yeah, yeah. at least for a while he pronounced uh, Bible as Beeble. That wasn't my mush mouth. That was apparently a real thing he did and I love it so much. The rest of the English speaking world, you know, they were and still are pronouncing it wrong. It's Beeble. Wake up sheeple and read your Beeble. Can you imagine hearing that at church? Uh, please open your Beebles to the book of Matthew, chapter four, verse 17. Did anyone bring their Beebles for today's Beeble study? I wonder how many followers that pronunciation would just cost him. Just like, Beeble? Who the fuck is this? Bible is Beeble. Fuck this guy, I'm out. Uh, naturally, the leader of the humans who uh, just Star Trekked over uh, was the soul that would one day manifest as Krishna Venta. But before that, it would go on to become all sorts of other prophets and saviors. So Christ, Krishna, whoever, uh, he would even visit Atlantis. Hell yeah. You can never uh, have too much Atlantis when talking about cults. He would write, let me take you back to the time of Atlantis. When it went down into the sea some 36,000 years ago. At that time, Christ was a leader who led the elect people out from this continent onto a land where they were safe, where they were safe from the destruction of Atlantis. The new civilization began to grow and Christ disappeared, only, return, only to return a little while later. So he's taking a, taking a page from some theosophical theology here. He appeared many times to the different civilizations. Approximately 27,000 years ago, a remnant of the Metaverdans left Egypt. Though the breaking of the Seal of Erdens, or through the breaking of the Seal of Erdens, a race of people that believed in destructions. The Metal Verdens. <laughs> what? I think that might have been a typo. The metal or fuck, I, I, meta. Uh, I hope it's metal. The, the Metal Verdens, right? Who love their fucking songs. Uh, <laughs> they migrated from one country to another. Until they settled in northern India, in the Himalayas, not far from Mount Everest. It feels like a fucking cold-ass place to settle. And have remained there to the present time. No. Uh, these people, <laughs> they made up. They're not real. He said would become the Hindu people of India, whom Krishna Christ would eventually visit. But it didn't go great. Uh, the doctrine uh, says, uh, the laws of God were outlined to them, but it was so ordained that the order could not be established until all nations would adhere to its principles. This was an unattainable goal at that particular time. So Krishna departed and bade them await his return. So he left India. He would then rest up in heaven for a really long time and then be some of the Christ we've already talked about, or maybe not. Maybe he would stay up in heaven the whole time. There's a lot of different versions of what he said that are all mixed up in my head. <laughs> so sometimes he's a fucking Highlander just walking the earth. Sometimes he kind of bounces back and forth. I feel like if you interrogated this guy and made him try to share his exact theology five different times over, say, like a year's period, you would get five very different stories. 
Um, a few things would say the same, right? He's Jesus, the end is near, and you need to, you know, stay with him to survive the end. Oh, uh, he would say at one point that Christ would visit Abraham Lincoln and Joseph Smith. He worked a little honest Abe into this. According to MKV's doctrine, Master Krishna appeared almost simultaneously to Abraham Lincoln and Joseph Smith. <laughs> he came to establish the order of God, but to do so, the strong chains of slavery, which bound his people, had to be broken. To Abraham Lincoln, he gave the power of freeing the slaves. And as if fucking Abe just did that all on his own. And to Joseph Smith, that of establishing the order of Melchizedek, along with the keeping of the keys, arcs, and covenants. Uh, once again, under sponsorship of Joseph Smith, the laws of God were lowered to the earth. The entire plan did not reach maturity, however, for upon his tragic death, uh, yeah, he was killed by a lynch mob for being a con man, uh, mostly. Uh, the order again degenerated under the leadership of his successor who chose to isolate the church instead of drawing together all the peoples of all religions and denominations under the one government of God. <laughs> pretty cool. Pretty cool that God came down to break the chains of slavery in the 1860s, but really fucking not cool at all that he first let slavery exist in the U.S. and the colonies that preceded the U.S. for over 400 fucking years. This shit always kills me, right? God ends this war, you know, or whatever ends this other tragedy. You know, God ends this famine, God ends this plague. And if you believe that and you're able to employ some logic, don't you also have to believe that the same God allowed the war, famine, plague, et cetera, to occur in the first place? It seems a little fucked up. But that's, yeah, that's the devil. That's the devil tinkering around. After visiting Joseph and Honest Abe, well, Christ leaves. And then Krishna Venta, a.k.a. Quantum Leap Christ, is back on earth in 1932. But again, sometimes he doesn't leave earth. According to one member uh, who would give her statement to the FBI years later, this is how she was told Christ became the master. The master actually came from a very beautiful place, the Meta Verde Valley, below Mount Everest in Nepal, India. We know it as the Valley of the Masters. He arrived there in a great big rocket ship. <laughs> There's just people not along Earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he, yeah, the rocket ship. Uh, from the planet Neophrates a long time ago. He is ageless. If you go to the valley, you can still see the rocket ship. Someday the master will take all of his flock to sea. It is still there. <laughs> I'm just trying to picture how fucking wide her eyes are when she's saying this. It's still there. Mm, yes. Mm. Oh, yeah, the rocket ship. Definitely could definitely have a rocket ship there. Uh, is it? I guess it might be there since the Meta Verde Valley is not a real fucking place. Right? A made-up place. Sounds like a good place to keep a made-up spaceship. Uh, she continues, Master Krishna came to America on March 29th, 1932. He got here by using teleportation, something only he knows about. <laughs> because people in this country need identification, he took the name of a man called uh, Pensevik. Pensevik was not a very good man. When the master took Pensevik's name, he gave him the name of Jensen and made him a better man. That's what happened, though some people may not believe it. Yeah, by some people, fucking almost all of the world. The poor, poor FBI agent <laughs> who had to pretend to take this seriously and write those down. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, no, that tracks. Uh, once Krishna Christ was uh, born again here in the US and of, a, of an adult age, I guess, he was ready to organize his new church. He would organize his priesthood along, you know, Mormon lines, as I mentioned, the whole Melchizedek stuff. Uh, there were 12 apostles who, with Krishna as president of the nonprofit corporation, would rule the order. The remainder of the membership would exist below their authority. And as I mentioned, all members would be required to donate any and all wealth they possess to the, the organization. Originally, the central tenets of this community emphasized chastity, honesty, and good works, as well as brotherly love. Nobody in the community was allowed to make passes at the other sex. Only after a marriage approved by the master, excuse me, 
uh, would they be allowed to have sex? They were taught to live by 11 core rules to forget the outside world. That's the first. To become familiar with the inside workings of oneself. To become unified with one another spiritually, mentally, and physically. To forget self. God, they had a lot of shit they had to forget. They had to forget the outside world and forget themselves. That's a big ask, right? Forget anything that might raise red flags about what we're doing here. Uh, Five, to create a desire within oneself toward higher spiritual equality. Six, to obtain wisdom. Seven, to search for understanding in all things. Eight, to face problems without thought of escape. Nine, to become absorbed in love toward all things, seen and unseen, and so fulfill the laws of God. Ten, to let the Spirit descend upon you. And finally, eleven, to become teachers, not in the world, but in the fountain, that all men who come out of the world shall find comfort in our midst. This is all very problematic. Interpretation of these rules will be used to somehow justify whatever Krishna wants to do. Oh, you're angry with me for fucking your wife. (laughs) Okay. Somebody forgot the rules. Please refer to rule number seven. Search for understanding, not in some things, but in all things. Now, please show yourself back out of the room and shut the door so I can finish knocking your wife's back out. And I bid you adieu. Uh, The fountain also had predictions for the future. Of course, he did. Uh, Venta prophesied or prophesied an imminent cataclysm with the master's projected flock of 144,000 guaranteed to be saved. Cult 101 shit, right? The end is near. Do not be afraid, though, children. Stay with me and I will show you the light and save you. Uh, Venta preached that the 144,000 will be drawn from all nations, all races, all colors, all creeds, men, women, and children. And this number wouldn't change if a million people, 5 million, 10 million people joined the fountain. They would still only be the 144K elect. Uh, This comes from interpretation of the book of Revelation. Chapter 7, verse 4. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Uh, And again, in Revelation 14, 1. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And it shows up in at least least one additional time in biblical scripture. Uh, The Jehovah's Witnesses, another cult, in my opinion, after doing an episode on them, they've placed this same emphasis on this number, right? They believe that exactly 144,000 faithful Christians from Pentecost of 33 AD until the present day will be resurrected to heaven as immortal spirit beings to spend eternity with God and Christ, which has to make you more and more nervous <laughs> as a Jehovah's Witness as time goes on. Because the longer time goes on, you're like, fuck, there's a lot of people in the world. There's more and more people, billions and billions of people. So many have died. Woo, odds just constantly get lower year by year that I'm going to be one of the 144K. Uh, they believe these people are anointed by God to become part of the spiritual Israel of God. And the witnesses, you know, they've been making a bunch of doomsday predictions earlier in the century when the master was uh, putting this all together, right? He again studied all kinds of belief systems and would pull a little from each to build his own theology. The master predicted for a period of 40 years, beginning in 1965, while destructive and devastating forces of evil encircle the earth, they will receive spiritual, mental, and physical training from Master Krishna himself within the newly formed order of the Melchizedek. And he kind of timed that out, right? To make it to 1995, like he'd be fucking super old, right? 95, well, not super, super old, but, but pretty old. So like he could have a good run with his cult and not worry about a failed doomsday prediction. Uh, So what uh, were these destructive and devastating forces? Well, the coming cataclysm would be interesting. It would begin with the racially motivated civil war in the West, particularly in in America, where black Americans would rise up and bloodily vanquish all the whites with aid from Russia. Mm -hmm. 
Then the traitorous Russians would turn around and conquer the black Americans and try and take over the world and maybe kind of succeed for a while. Here's an excerpt of his actual teachings. When Russia takes over the world, she will immediately set up or set up 10 puppet governments in 10 sections of the world and will place upon those thrones a form of a king. The 10 kings shall reign for approximately 41 years. After a 44-year period, the 144,000 elect will go out into the world without guns or ammunition of any kind to protect them. Many will lose their lives, but in that moment they will have gained their lives. They will have received a greater reward. For he who loseth his life for my namesake shall gain it. Those 10 kings who served with the beast will see the atrocities which are being committed upon the spiritual people who have no means of protecting themselves. This will awaken the 10 kings to the laws of God and cause them to remember how much better it was when there was religious freedom. Having received the power from the beast, they sh- or their power from the beast, they shall now rise up to destroy the power which has enslaved the people and peace shall reign on earth. How much time do you think old Krishna put into that prediction? Hour, maybe two hours? Uh, how are those 10 kings going to destroy the beast, by the way? Fucking thoughts and prayers, nukes, nunchucks. And how does all, this all tie back into the master's cult? Well, essentially, the, Christ, the Christian's followers, after spending the war tucked away, snugly in a safe place, right? they're going to hide out and be like the only fucking people, uh, the white members that the black people didn't kill. <laughs> then they'll reemerge from a secret valley, protected by magic or some shit. Uh, once the 10 kings have been woken up and they'll help conquer the Russians uh, and build a shiny new world of equality, religious freedom, and peace for all with Krishna Venta in his rightful place as world messiah. Totally. This prediction being made, of course, during the ramping up of the Cold War. So yeah, the Russians are going to be uh, you know, a primary focus. They're going to be pitted as forces of the devil in an American cult's predictions. He just took what people were currently afraid of based on world events and wove some old biblical mumbo jumbo into that. Right. And then some other fucking theosophy and <laughs> some new age stuff popular at the time. Make the old fear the new fear. Also, if all this sounds a lot like Helter Skelter, right, the apocalyptic future preached by Charles Manson, well, it, it is pretty familiar. It seems that Chuck would later adapt the silly bullshit into his own teachings. And we will reconnect with Manson just for a moment towards the end of the timeline. Uh, speaking of the timeline, let's head into today's. Right after a quick sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash time suck. 
After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thank you for listening to today's sponsors. And now we will get into our TIMESUCK timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a TIMESUCK timeline. Francis Frank Herman Pensevich, born to Jewish immigrants in San Francisco on March 29th, 1911, something of a historical enigma. To his followers, he will become known as Krishnaventa, Master Krishnaventa, or more simply as just the Master. 
Easily a top 10 nickname, by the way. The Master. Hard to top that one. Uh, as we already heard about the crazy backstory, or, or excuse me, and we already heard about the crazy backstory he gave himself. But when it comes to the real Francis Pensevic, we don't know anything about his childhood. We know his mother was Maude Buzanbach, is her maiden name, born in Utah. His father, Albert Pensevic, Jewish immigrant from Romania. And uh, that's it. It's fairly common with cult leaders. The less people know about your real history, the easier it is for you to invent some history. When he was 25, yeah, we don't, we don't know anything about his first 25 years. When he was 25, Francis got married to Lucille Webster in 1936. And uh, they will have two children together. A son, Vaughn Christina Pensevic, and a daughter, Lavella Avon Pensevic. In 1941, 1942, so jumping ahead here, five, six years, he was employed as a, a ship or employed at the shipyards in Oakland, California as a timekeeper. Also in 1941, arrested for sending threatening letters to President Roosevelt, uh, but then later released. I wish I knew what those letters said. That info seems to be lost to history. Early indication of mental illness, perhaps. I don't think too many sane people send threatening letters to the president. Mr. President, tis I, new Jesus, but really old Jesus. I demand you announce me as King Krishnavanta Jesus guy immediately. Do not make me smite you. Maybe he wrote something like that. 1942, he'll be sentenced to nine months in Santa Paula for issuing bad checks, placed on three years probation, sent to the state mental hospital in Stockton for observation. So probably mentally ill. Uh, there are also a variety of other charges, panhandling, begging, theft among them on his criminal record. Uh, Lucille and Francis get divorced in 1944. And it seems like it was Lucille's call. Guessing she didn't care for his, uh, you know, criminality and mental instability, especially back in the days before decent mental health treatment. Assuming she didn't want to be married to someone sending threatening letters to the president and stuff. Around this time, Francis is working as a machinist helper for $75 a week. Lucille gets custody of their kids who are now six and four. Francis ordered to pay $20 per month for support of each kid. He made one payment, entered the army, authorized an allotment for his children. The Department of Defense actually obligated by law to make sure child support payments are made. And then he's discharged uh, for an unknown reason from the army in 1945. Uh, Now he stops making child support payments. Lucille has to get governmental support from Alameda County where they lived. Francis moved to Salt Lake City where he will be, uh, where he had been before as an iterant worker. This time he finds a different reason to stick around a, a new love interest. And her name is Ruth. And she will give him six children. And she knew that his morals were unique, to put it mildly but she didn't care. Uh, she will later say to the assistant district attorney investigating Krishna Vensta, love is the most beautiful idea in our language. Evil is to those who evil think. <laughs> the master was a much misunderstood man. I know him to be a person of high moral quality, but only in the way he understood the term. Man, what a bunch of bullshit rationalization there. Uh, a bunch of word salad nonsense. Evil is to those who evil think. What the fuck does that even mean? It means nothing. I bet she intends it to mean that the master was so transcendent, subjective morality constructs like good and evil just didn't apply to him. He's above it or was, you know, because he was so good, so pure, so spiritually evolved. Anything he did, you know, was good because he did it. Evil wasn't a thought in his mind, not even a possibility. And that's the kind of shit that uh, megalomaniacs who definitely do evil shit from time to time tell themselves. Uh, She continues, the difficulty is making the outside world understand that your idea of what is moral or is not may not be the same as theirs. A child is a creation of love. How can anyone say there could be anything evil or wrong in the creation of a child? The master was all wise and all knowing. He could not have committed an immoral act. 
Uh, what about, let me, let me throw a question out for you, Ruth. What about rape? That act creates children. So when rape, uh, let's say an especially violent gang rape leads to a beautiful child, is the act then absolved of any evilness or wrongness? I bet Ruth wouldn't have a good answer for that uh, question. Man, cult members, so good at, you know, just rationalizing the irrational. Uh, not long after these two fucking ding-dongs get married, the cult con begins. But Francis doesn't immediately start calling himself Jesus. Now you got to fucking sit on that for a second. Uh, he speaks in Provo, Utah on June 24th, 1946 as Dr. Francis Pensevic. He's a doctor now. You fucking dimwit front butt dump. Doctor in what? Well, the mysteries of life, motherfucker. Where do you go to school? Uh, God's school for uh, chosen prophets. Don't even worry about it. Don't even look for it. You can't find it. God's school for chosen prophets finds you. Uh, Francis lecture on the secrets of the future, the powers of mental telepathy, of course, how to gain health, wealth, happiness, <laughs> and on the great secrets of India. Man, so much. What a bargain. What a bargain. Man, people go into that lecture. Gosh, do they get a lot of bang for their buck? You, you want to learn how to be perfectly healthy? Uh, how to speak only with your mind? How to always be happy? Do you want to quickly become wealthy? Well, just fucking come to my lecture. I'll teach you to manifest all. Uh, he claimed to be one of the great masters of the uh, Meta Verde. Sometimes it says in sources Mes- Mesa Verde Valley or Meta Verde Valley. It's fucking, it's not a real place. He said it was a place in the Himalayas that existed some 26,000 years ago before the fall of Atlantis which I think the, even the timeline there is a little off with Atlanta. But anyway, Madame Blavatsky, again, she would feel so proud or ripped off. Three days later, he gives a similar speech in Ogden, Utah under the nickname uh, or name now of Krishnaventa. And he will now go by versions of that for the rest of his life, right? You don't need the title of doctor when you are the master. In Florida, he gets, uh, makes it over to Florida. He starts bouncing around the world now. Just, you know, him and his, uh, and Ruth, Driving around, we don't know exactly how he got his money, swindling people somehow to get it, I'm, I'm assuming. Uh, in Florida, the papers make fun of him, calling the Bronx Swami. <laughs> As he was telling people he had a, he was from India, but had an accent so American that his Eastern origin story held no water. I'm not sure why they assigned uh, the Bronx to him there. As he was born on the West Coast, but I don't know, maybe, maybe he had a Bronx accent at that point. <laughs> um. Uh, late 1947, David Lackstrom's parents go to a, a lecture given by Krishna Venta in Worcester, Massachusetts. At this point, Krishna is not wearing robes yet. His hair is short. David stayed at home, but when his parents got back, they told him about how they were impressed by Krishna's stories of landing in a spaceship in Tibet. How fucking sad if that's what your parents, you know, come back from a lecture and tell you, oh man, this is such a good lecture. I especially love the part about how this guy landed in a spaceship in Tibet. Uh, this was nothing new to David. His parents had long been interested in eccentric religious practices, theosophy, and Hela, Helena Blavatsky especially, of course. Man, David, sounds like he did not win the parent lottery. They, they keep going to lectures where they meet a couple named uh, Gertie and Rudy Blazer. Initially, the Blazers, they wanted to start up a, a splinter group based on Krishna's teachings in Massachusetts, but they'll later decide to go to California and uh, see what the group forming there is uh, is all about. Krishnaventa will change his name to Krishnaventa legally and officially found his new religious society, the WKFL Fountain, in 1948. WKFL stood for wisdom, knowledge, faith, and love. The core tenets of the community. And again, what a nice, what a nice little acronym. How could anything bad happen in a group named Wisdom, Knowledge, Faith, and Love? That's a that's a good group. That's that's not a bad group with a bad acronym like Dick. Right? Debauchery, ignorance, cunt punching, and kid diddling. 
fucking no one, no one wants to sign up for dick. You know, you don't, you don't sign up for the dick fountain. That's a fucking terrible. Stay far away from Dick Fountain. Uh, later, Frank Jesus would tell a newspaper where his idea for his name came from. He would say he got the name when he was appear, uh, appeared in a nativity play in the Christmas season of 1948. <laughs> and the quote is, we were singing peace on earth, goodwill toward men, when I suddenly realized that the world did not have peace and there was little goodwill. That, that didn't occur to him until he was fucking 37 years old. He didn't, he didn't think about how, how the world didn't have peace a few years earlier when World War II was raging. Why are God's chosen prophets usually so fucking dumb? Uh, another member of the Nativity cast who would become known as Brother Gene said he had the same experience. So we got two geniuses and the two men made a vow to devote their lives to service and a cult is born. Frank continued lecturing to gather converts, traveling from San Antonio to Denver, then Chicago this year. Shortly after the group becomes official, they already have a, about a hundred members. And uh, all of them will be residing in a massive home maintained by the fountain at Canoga Park in Ventura County. They have a communal system of living they put into place quickly. Nobody's uh, working a regular job on the outside, at least for a little while. All food, clothing, medical care provided by the society. Funds obtained, of course, by new members who transfer all their property to the society upon admittance. And there were donations made by people who were associated with the cult but didn't live on the compound. They didn't, they didn't want to give away everything. They want to live on the compound, but they like what they're doing over there. So they'll throw them some money. 1949, uh, Krishna and 60 of his closest acolytes moved to a Glen and Box Canyon where their uh, little cult remained for about two decades. A narrow parcel near the Chatsworth Reservoir in the Santa Susana Mountains of Simi Valley, about 30 miles north of downtown LA. Soon, stranded motorists along ribbon-thin Box Canyon Road began noticing a new and strange phenomenon. Kind, mysterious people, barefoot and wearing robes of varying colors, will emerge from the brush offering a four-wheel drive tow truck if needed. And how weird would that be to experience, right? Your car breaks down, you know, flat tire, whatever, several miles from a place that can fix it in the days before cell phones. And you're like, oh, damn it. God, I hope I'm not stuck here forever. Oh, please God, send someone to help me, anyone. And then a bunch of fucking barefoot prophet looking motherfuckers just kind of wander out of the bushes. I need a hand, brother. <laughs> March 14th, 1949, a London newspaper will report that Krishna Venta has a million followers and he doesn't. Not even close. This is some PR bullshit. He has uh, still about 100. This report coincides with his arrival in England where he stays in a suite in the West End that costs 70 pounds a week. An excerpt for the article read, Krishnaventa, American religious philosopher, hailed by more than a million followers throughout the world. No. Uh, as Christ in the second coming, arrived at Shannon Airport from New York on a visit to London, Copenhagen, Paris, and Rome. He was barefooted and dressed in saffron yellow biblical robes. His wife, Ruth, was dressed in a nun's habit of coral pink, and she wore peep-toe sandals. Uh, in England, Frank Jesus went on a lecture tour, reading from his Bible, and telling attendees that the last time he was in England was 1,900 years ago. Oh, that's cool. Uh, this recruiting trip, uh, like all his uh, trips, paid for by the foundation, uh, helped him uh, also escape ongoing legal battles with his ex-wife <laughs> in California. That's, a, that's one of the hardest things about being a prophet, fucking ex-wife you know, legal battles. He wasn't paying child support still uh, for his first two kids. Same day he arrived in London, a court in California ruled on his case that a parent may not evade the obligation to support his minor children by refusing for religious reasons to seek or accept gainful employment. He tried to fight it, saying the foundation had only $300 on hand and over $400 in bills due that month. Did they only have that amount of money? I mean, they did have enough money to fucking send him and his wife to London and Copenhagen and Paris and, you know, whatnot. And he said that he he was gainfully employed, just not legally, 
because he was a spiritual leader and to take a gainful employment outside of his religious teachings would be to back out on a vow to serve God. The court didn't buy this. They're like, yeah, how about you shut the fuck up? I, I, I just heard everything he said. Uh, how about you shut the fuck up and just pay your child support? And he was charged with contempt of court. Uh, again, actually, he'd been charged with contempt of court back in January. The verdict was that although freedom of conscience and freedom to believe are absolute, the freedom to act is not. The Constitution does not compel the subordination of the statutory, statutory duty of a parent to support his child to a rule of religious conduct, prohibiting gainful employment. Yep. Uh, the court maintained that he had to pay his monthly child support for Vaughn uh, Christina Pensevic, now uh, his now 18-year-old son, who is currently a pre-law student at Oakland Junior College, and Lavella Avon Pensevic, his 16-year-old daughter, who was a student at the McKinley School. Uh, but Krishna did not pay. Not right away. He was out on his cult-funded European tour where he felt he didn't have to answer to anyone. Uh, March 20th, paying attention to none of the court shit, Krishna uh, Venta arrives at the Torslanda Airport in Gothenburg, Sweden. And in Sweden, he is heavily ridiculed and, <laughs> and cuts his stay short. So good on the Swedes. Uh, on his next stop in Italy, <laughs> he's more than just ridiculed. He's, uh, he's threatened with bodily attack and leaves early out of you know fear for his safety. Nice. Get the fuck out of here, Italiano, Marinara, Ferrari, Lissamarano. Overall, not a super successful trip. By the beginning of the summer, he'd be back in the U.S. where he would lie about how successful his tour was in the days before social media, and the internet made that easier to do. He and Ruth arrived with a press book to show waiting reporters clippings from his triumphant tour that didn't really happen. Uh, you know, papers would write about his arrival, and you'd use that as proof of success. Uh, as he stood on the steps of the airplane, he looked down and said, I may as well say it. I am Christ. Nice. And then he continued to lie his ass off, telling reporters in Rome, 10,000 people met me. I had a police escort. 10,000 people didn't meet him. And he may have had a police escort because the few people that did show up wanted to beat the shit out of him. Uh, Mothers held their babies in the crowd, waiting for my blessing. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, when asked, he admitted begrudgingly that he did not get the audience with the Pope he hoped for. Apparently, the Pope was too busy, uh, but did mention this wasn't his first trip to Vatican City. Now, he'd been there back around 600 CE when he had been the honored guest of Pope Leona. Uh, who? Uh, pope Gregory. The first was the Pope in 600 CE. <laughs> so, okay. At this point, the reporters started to debate him, right? Because they, they're probably a little more familiar with history than him and... Uh, they know that he's full of shit. And they wonder, how, how had he obtained a birth certificate? How did he obtain a birth certificate if he was that old? And he says, well, now I'll tell you. I used a passport issued in the name of Frank Pensevic. He was a boy who disappeared in San Francisco at the age of three. And then he just kind of sauntered away in his robe. By the beginning of the summer, Frank Jesus would be in jail for non-support of his first kids. We don't know the exact dates he was incarcerated, but we know he was out by July because on the morning of July 12th, 1949, Standard Airlines Flight 897R leaves Albuquerque, New Mexico at 4.24 a.m. local time, which is a fucking weird time for a flight to leave, uh, and was en route to Lockheed Air Terminal in Burbank. Uh, At 7.36 a.m., the C-46 was cleared to land. While descending through patchy fog, the right wing struck the side of a hill. The July 13th, 1949, L.A. Times reported that shortly before the crash, a fist fight had broken out between two men on board. That's exciting. Survivors later said that the uh, fight was not the cause of the crash. The pilot was just flying too low. Regardless of the reason the plane crashed, the plane cartwheeled into the mountainside at 140 miles an hour, and some people were not surprised that this happened. Prior to the crash, Standard Airlines had been scheduled to be shut down. 
The July 13th, 1949 LA Times reported, Standard Airlines of Long Beach recently had been ordered by the Civil Aeronautics Board to wind up its business by July 20th for regulation violations. In a regular, non-scheduled carrier, it charged only $113 for cross-country fare as opposed to a scheduled airline charge of 181 So they just like put together fucking random flights taken off at different times and uh, sounds like they weren't real good at flying. Sounds like a weird-ass airline. Did the CIA own them? Was this main purpose like drug smuggling or something? At the time it happened, the crash was Southern California's deadliest aviation accidents. Of the original 48 passengers, only 15 survived. 35 were killed, including two infants. Don't know about the guys fist fighting. I'm guessing they probably didn't make it since they weren't in their seats uh, with their seatbelts on. Uh, On the hillside, the injured lay screaming in pain alongside the dead and dying. In an August 2nd, 1999 Los Angeles Times story, survivor Karen Marsh remembered after climbing out of the wreckage, she said she thought for a moment she had died because men in long robes were walking around her. Angels, perhaps. But they were not angels. Amongst the burnt wreckage of the plane was Krishna himself directing evacuations in his bare feet and robes. Cult members followed, taking his orders. What a fucking weird moment that would be to survive a plane crash. <laughs> and then when you come to, a bunch of cult members are around you wearing weird robes, you know, long beards, long hair. Do not be afraid, little children. Tis I, Jesus, Frank, Krishna, master guy. The one who was returned was foretold in the Bible. If you have ever read the Bible, fear not. I bring his teachings to you now. Uh, the press had a field day taking pictures of the cult members in the long robes as they battled the flames and removed burned bodies from the wreckage. Yeah, I bet they did. LA Times reported, many were startled <laughs> as they neared the crash scene to see solemn, bearded, coarse-robed men waving them on. The volunteer traffic officers were disciples of Krishnaventa, a self-styled Christ, who maintains a monastery in a stone house in Box Canyon, only a few hundred yards from the disaster scene. Krishnaventa and one disciple, Brother Paul, wearing brown and blue robes, respectively, worked actively to extricate the victim's bodies. They strode unflinchingly across the rock-strewn terrain in their bare feet. Uh, they would then go on to visit the victims in their hospital beds, providing comfort. I'm sure a lot of laughs for the uh, for the doctors and nurses. Because of the surreal situation, Look Magazine would publish a four-page pictorial titled California's Offbeat Religions. We love you. Do you love them? And that would introduce the nation to the WKFL Fountain of the World. <laughs> really wish their name would have been Dick Fountain instead, but whatever. The article said that the group's adult members came from all corners of life, from day laborers to white-collar professionals, and they worked six days a week tending to a small herd of goats and sheep, harvesting furrows that grew their mainly, uh, you know, herbivorous diet, diet or uh, baking uh, homemade bread on outdoor wood stoves. Children were communally raised and schooled. So trippy that all this is going on about 25 miles from Burbank and just two miles from the edge of the San Fernando Valley. The article quoted a woman named Elder Nakona who described a foot washing ceremony cultists completed at the end of each day. She would say, <laughs> I love this. Uh, they did this to show humility in biblical times, so we do it today. When asked to explain, I guess it would be biblical, uh, in biblical times. When asked to explain why cult members were always barefoot, she said, a radio has to be grounded. So it should be with humans. I mean, we're not radios, but okay. Uh, by walking barefoot, static electricity generated in the body is carried off. Persons who wear shoes very often pick up a tremendous amount of static electricity and as a result, have nervous breakdowns. <laughs> totally, totally. Uh, my therapist has often talked to me about this. You know, if I talk about feeling overwhelmed with too much going on, she's like, are you still wearing shoes? Dan, 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 you gotta get rid of your shoes, buddy. If you care about your mental health, 
Look up anyone who's ever had a nervous breakdown and you will find one thing they all have in common and that is shoes. Uh, What if it really was that easy to feel better? (laughs) Like how great if mental health afflictions could be, you know, just uh, solved, cured with solutions like this. It reminds me of Dr. Merritt W. Terrell's medical advice from episode 290, the Amish killer, Edward Gingrich, right? The guy who wanted to cure Ed's schizophrenia by pulling on his toes, literally in some kind of chiropractic way and also having him drink blackstrap molasses, right? If only. The bad news is that you're clinically depressed and that's why you've been listless and burdened with uh, suicidal ideation. Uh, The good news is that you can be easily cured by wearing mittens, for at least an hour a week. Your hands are too exposed to the elements. You gotta protect them a little bit and you'll never feel bad again. Oh, I can see how you're uh, riddled with paralyzing anxiety. How, how terrible. But we can knock anxiety out real quick. Your belt's too tight. Tight belts. One and only cause of all anxiety. Just take it down a notch. And immediately, you'll be overcome with peace and tranquility. Uh, thanks to this article in Look Magazine, a couple of other articles, the cult members quickly gained a reputation as being gentle, kind humanitarians. One of the cult members who went by Priest Charles, oh, Priest Chuck, was uh, also quoted as having said, uh, people driving narrow box Canyon Road are always running into a ditch. We have a four-wheel drive tow truck and come to their aid, which they did. Uh, this article uh, also helped them gain a little attention for being, you know, a little fucking crazy. The whole nervous breakdown shit was nuts. Aside from their humanitarian efforts and mental health advice, the cult also held plays for their community on Saturday nights. They prayed, ate, sang together every morning and night. Peace Charles proudly said, we also make excellent homemade bread on outdoor stoves with wood coals for heat. So yeah, fucking come for the bread, stay for the play. Also in July of 1949, the Laxstrom family from Massachusetts, whom we met earlier, arrives at Box Canyon. Uh, the family consisted of, two, of the parents, Reuben and Elsa, both 52, David, 20, his brother Peter, 17, and sister Sylvia, 15. A strange group of people greeted them, including Tony, a medical student on sabbatical, Ruth and her children, and a young man named Peter Kamenoff who appeared to be an especially fanatical Krishna follower. We'll track his story uh, more than many of the others today. Uh, Sylvia was quickly drafted into taking care of Krishna and Ruth's kids. Elsa started helping run the household chores and cooking. All of them would live in different rooms. As time progressed, uh, there would be little money to support this group, though, and they would uh, start to not enjoy their stay as much. Reuben had to get a job at the, the Van Nuys Airport. David got a night job at Radio Plane, wherever that was, to help bring in money. Uh, August 30th, 1949, Krishna Venta makes a stop in Portland, Oregon. He and Ruth, are, uh, they will visit the mayor. Mayor Lee will entertain them and they will tell him they're looking for the nation's most righteous city. And you know what? Portland was not it. Sorry, Portland. Work on your fucking righteousness, okay? Maybe try and read up on your Bible for once. Uh, another failed trip. When he got back, Krishna Venta announced that he had found some lost money in Las Vegas, though. <laughs> hmm. Uh, more in Vegas later. It's pretty good. Bunch of people were not happy with him for leaving so long, but the money combined with Krishna reading a lengthy passage of John from the Bible pertaining to leaving, I, I guess kind of soothed them. Not long after his return, a young woman named Jean Bates, who was attending high school with Peter Laxstrom, David's little brother, told David that she saw the master fucking the mom of a teenage boy who lived in the group. And also mentioned that the master was pretty well endowed. So that's interesting. I wonder how many cult leaders have big dicks. Right? Maybe some of that big dick energy helps them lead. I mean, I would think if you had a big dick, you'd be more interested in spreading it around to a lot of cult members and getting that validation as opposed to having a tiny dick. I don't know. 
have to do a study. Uh, January of 1950, Krishna returned from yet another trip, this time to Chicago, called a meeting for each member to make a choice. Were they going to serve the spiritual path, follow him, or the material path, the way of the world? And apparently this backfired a bit. About half <laughs> wanted to follow him on the spiritual path, but while the other half were like, ah, I don't know. I kind of like stuff here on earth. Uh, July of 1950, the Lackstroms have had enough. The parents, Elsa and Reuben, they've been working for the last six months now to make enough money, hiding it to head back to Massachusetts, uh, which they finally did. God, good for them though. I mean, it had to have been tough. They had to give all their shit to him when they got there, sell their place, I'm sure, all that stuff. And then, But then they were like, you know what? Just because we uh, were pot committed, we're not going to follow that sunk cost fallacy and just uh, continue making more bad decisions because we made a previously bad one. By the time they leave, David fully believes that Krishna Venta is a hypocrite who just wants attention and pussy. Meanwhile, Ruth and Master Frank Jesus are now south of the border doing more recruiting. They're always in and out. They'll come to the compound a little bit, probably, you know, fuck a bunch of members' wives, and then, well, he will, and then they sneak around for more recruiting to find more wives to fuck, more money to come in and fund their bullshit. Uh, Ruth and Krishna find themselves in Guatemala, Nicaragua in October of 1950. They return from South America in March of 1951. So this is, you know, quite a trip. No word on how successful or not their recruiting efforts were. Probably not very good. Sounds like they were mostly just getting to travel around the world, see a bunch of cool places on the Colt's dime. While the Colt raises their kids back home and, you know, keeps their little operation going. Uh, This year, Krishna incorporates the fountain. It'll be governed by a board of directors and officers, but he will be the treasurer and, of course, spiritual leader, the master. Uh, Nobody will get an official salary. Their tax exemption status will be filed with the state of California in December. Also, Alameda County will institute criminal proceedings against Krishna at this time. They find him guilty of non-support, order him to pay $20 per month for each kid. Again, $10 in addition uh, per month to uh, for back support, for back child support. This fucker. Right, he has the funds to gallivant around the globe, but can't be bothered to send 20 bucks a month in child support. His ex-wife uh, will now get some of the money, you know, for a few months because, you know, Krishna's probation officer through Alameda County is making sure of that. Not sure why the kids are still getting it, by the way. Since they're both 18 or older now, his son's 20, his daughter's 18. But again, some of the sources on this, I don't know if I totally trust like the ages. Uh, the cult moves into its final location, further up Box Canyon, August 27th, 1951. In the beginning, they live in tents while Krishna, Ruth, their boys installed themselves in one of the numerous sandstone caves found in the area. So they're living in caves now. Uh, eventually, the group builds several sturdy edifices from materials gleaned from the surrounding creeks and hillsides, including segregated dormitories, two-story dining hall, and administration center. And again, they did a pretty cool job of building stuff from local material. Oak trees grew through the ceilings of two of the buildings. The jewel of the commune, stone-walled monastery built by pilgrims as a tribute to their master. Uh, and from what I can tell, poking around, it doesn't seem these buildings exist. Or if they do, they're on private property. And the people aren't promoting like, hey, come, come fucking you know, hop my fence and jump in my yard and check out these old buildings. Uh, September of 1951, Frank Jesus will take off to Denver for a month, a solo recruiting trip. Maybe some ladies there he would like to introduce to his biblical Krishna prophet trouser snake to. Uh, 1952, the foundation will pay for Krishna and some other members to take trips to 54 different cities to study fire equipment in fire departments and advance the cause of the society. Yeah. This is the thing. They really were trying to figure out how to, uh, you know, use firefighting to their advantage now, you know, to d- double down on their little firefighting they're doing. They, they visit Seattle, Washington in the winter of 1952 for, I don't know, I guess, fire studies and also for some evangelical work. Their presence in the Emerald City is first announced by a two-column, eight-inch advertisement in both of Seattle's primary newspapers at that time, 
The ad contained a photograph of a bearded man in a long robe resembling the traditional depictions of Jesus Christ. Beside the picture are the words, we believe this is Christ, the begotten son of God. What more can we say? Listen to the words of Christ. And then there was a time and place for, you know, public appearance listed below. At that public appearance, January 20th, 1952, crowd of around 300 people gather. How many of them were actually interested in uh, joining up with Krishna? How many of them were just there out of curiosity? Hard to say. At least one of the people attending, just curious. William R. Catton Jr. was a professor at the University of North Carolina who later published a paper about this experience and his subsequent study of this group called What Kind of People Does a Religious Cult Attract? It'll be published in 1957. Uh, Catton would go to several more meetings, uh, even approached uh, Krishna directly with the tape recorder and questions for the members. He handed him some questionnaires. Most of the attendees, he observed, were middle to lower class with an equal number of men and women, most all of them white. His questionnaire would show that they came from just about every denomination, Christianity, Baptist, Catholic, Christian scientists, Congregational, Episcopal, Greek Orthodox, Jehovah's Witness, Latter-day Saint, Lutheran, and some non-Christians that like mental science, uh, Methodist, Pentecostal, Quaker, Seventh-day Adventist, Unitarian, and the list went on. Uh, Mental science uh, was probably an aspect of what was called the New Thought Movement, a blend of ancient philosophy, Buddhism, Christian principles, occultism, early 20th century psychology, a bunch of new age principles and more. It would take quite a while to fully explain. There's no real agreed upon core theology for this spiritual movement that started in the mid 19th century. Just a lot of little splinter groups basing their beliefs on the teachings of Phineas Quimby and people he influenced. Phineas could be a topic in his own right. He was a clockmaker, mentalist, mesmerist, theologian, and supposed healer. He was a really smart guy. He was also a huge fucking wackadoodle grifton quack. Uh, contemporary in many ways to Helena Blavatsky. Some of Quimby's teachings heavily influenced the founding of the Christian science movement and other lesser known religious and spiritual belief systems. Uh, man, history. Truly no shortage of spiritual leaders supposedly reinventing the wheel somehow, but really just peddling the same old, same old. Uh, during the first Krishna sermon, he witnessed Cat and the professor observed that the presentation was conducted by several disciples dressed in plain robes and bare feet, right? They don't have nervous breakdowns in the middle of this wearing beards and long hair and embracing each member of the audience as they enter. Cult, cult, cult. Oh, the master is preparing. Uh, One of them called Peter gave a quiet, lengthy introduction to the master who made a dramatic entrance. And then in an hour long lecture, he reprimanded the crowd for having paid him very little attention 1900 years earlier. You know, when Jesus was crucified. I don't know if these people deserve to be reprimanded. I mean, you know, they weren't alive about you know, during that, during that time, but, but I get it, but I get him being salty about it. You know, I mean, if I was nailed to a cross and left to rot in the sun for a few days, all to help the world's souls get to heaven. And still most people don't respect me when I fucking show back up. I'd probably be pretty pissed too. Uh, Krishna said that his present mission was the gathering of the elect and not to save souls. Then there was a Q and a section and through a couple, and though a couple of people did make fun of him, I wish I knew exactly what they said. Uh, a bunch of others seemed to be listening intensely. At the second meeting, the uh, following evening, January 21st, the dramatic entrance of the master was unexpectedly interrupted by the minister of the liberal church in which the meeting was held. The minister said he had just discovered the night before that Krishna was not who he says he was and had a lengthy criminal record. (laughs) And Krishna was asked to leave. Take your Bible and get out of my church. Uh, Frank Jesus, Krishna master guy, replied defiantly before he left that he was being persecuted by so-called Christians. And then some members of the audience started yelling out at him, saying he was not Jesus. Uh, they had Bible verses to prove it. One person yelled, if you're really the Christ, show us the scars of your crucifixion. 
All right, that's one thing you could yell. However, if you really were some kind of immortal walk the earth for centuries Highlander Christ, would you still have scars or would your body constantly heal itself and keep your skin perfect? There's a lot to think about when it comes to how you would look if you'd been around for over 1900 years in human body, but also were a deity. I think a more practical test, at least to start with, would be for Jesus Frank to prove he spoke numerous languages fluently, right? Like Aramaic. That's the language like OG Jesus supposedly spoke. So, you know, or Latin. If this dude was bouncing around the world in the first few centuries, he definitely had to have speak, you know, spoken Latin or, or Sanskrit over in India, something. He didn't speak American English the whole time, right? English didn't begin to develop as a language at all until the fifth century. Uh, the third meeting took place January 27th, 1952. All the captain said was that it dealt with prophecy. Mm, Frank Jesus must have encountered a lot less kickback from the crowd. I wonder if he spoke of Skidmark. <laughs> there would be a powerful prophetess, Skidmark, who along with Prince Jeffrey will bring about a new age. Uh, at the fourth meeting on January 30th, Krishna lectured on hypnotism and mental telepathy. Fuck yeah. Uh, in, as Catton described it, rather abstract terms. <laughs> That's a nice way of saying it. he didn't make a lot of sense. It was a lot of bullshit word salad. A lot of new age psychobabble nonsense about, you know, magical mental powers. In the fifth lecture, a lot of lectures, February 3rd, uh, Krishna informed the, the uh, audience that Christ and Jesus were two different people. Interesting twist. He said that Christ assisted God in the creation of the universe, had been with men since the beginning, and that Christ, not Jesus, was crucified. Okay? Uh, Krishna, excuse me, uh, reasserted that he was Christ. I am Christ, the son of the living God, the eternal Christ. The one that was crucified 1900 years ago died and was buried and on the third day rose again. Okay, so who was Jesus? I'm not really sure uh, he got around to answering that in that lecture. I think he was just saying that like Jesus was like a dude who the soul of Christ and, you know, went inside of. And then I guess on the crucifixion, like the, the, du- the dude was already gone and it was just Christ. I don't know. Uh, he also spent a long time complaining about the current state of the freedom of the press in the U.S., uh, given that both Seattle newspapers had refused to carry his advertisements for subsequent lectures. That had nothing to do with the freedom of the press. They just didn't want to do business, I'm guessing, with a blatant con man back when maybe uh, more media outlets had more integrity than they do now. Uh, the Christians said that they bailed because they were pressured by interests that were afraid of his power. Mm, totally, he was that important. The last Seattle meeting would come February 10th, 1952. This time he discussed his criminal record. I guess he'd been exposed, right? So he felt the need to address it. And rather than apologize for being a deadbeat dad, he described himself as a martyr for humanity at the hands of a cruel and selfish society. He said, it is true, children. (laughs) I wouldn't like somebody uh, fucking referring to me as like, you know, children, by the way. That would just immediately rub the wrong way. If I'm going to a speech and someone's just talking to the the crowd, listen, children. Whoa, whoa, ah, easy, easy pops. Uh, It is true, children. I've served time for committing that bad check. Okay, so now he's a, <laughs> that seemed like a failed, uh, uh, or bad check, writing bad checks arrest. I served nine months in a road gang, three years on probation. It is true, children, that I was convicted for a so-called burglary. The truth cannot be in someone like that because the person is bad and society says he is bad and condemns him for everything he has done. And yet it has not stopped me from my mission and my work. As much as society has said that I was guilty of those crimes, I say I was not guilty. Why? It's good for all of you. You know why I'm telling you this today. I want you to condemn me too and show your true Christian spirit. I want to see how Christian, no, I want to see how much Christian you are and how much hypocrite you are. What? So he wasn't guilty because it's, it's good for you? Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> he, he, oh, he, he did it to do something bad, 
so that people would judge him so that he could prove that they weren't real Christians and try to get them to be Christians. I think that's what he's saying here. And you could use that rationalization to do anything bad you want to do. According to Catton, several members of the audience openly wept through this diatribe. Dear God, there is never a shortage of fucking suckers in the world. Some days I've expressed over and over in previous episodes, you know, or as I have, I really truly feel sorry for cult members. And, and, I, and I always feel sorry for children dragged into this bullshit. But some days like today, I struggle to find, you know, sympathy for the adults. Just how fucking sad is it? There are so many people in the world who are so easily conned, right? Just to get, just to even like get fucking roped into this to begin with. Just once again, education is so important. Education only based in what has been scientifically studied and proven. Education based on carefully carried out studies, entertain other shit, okay. Wonder over the unsolved mysteries of life, sure. Ponder over spiritual or paranormal questions and concerns, right? I love that stuff too. But the core needs to be empirical, rational, scientific study, cold logic, I truly believe that combats this kind of con and so many other cons more than anything else, right? The more properly educated we are as a society, uh, the less grifters like this now nuts will be able to find, you know, easy marks. The less skid marks, maybe we'll have. Uh, at the end of the last meeting, an audience member once again challenged the Krishna, are you the embodiment of Christ? And this time he answered, if I were to say no to you, you would be pleased because you are not willing to accept. If I were to say yes, that I am, you would be very highly displeased and say, no, it isn't possible. So I have to make my choice between you and God. I fear not what man might say about me and all of his rejections. I do not fear, but I do fear God. Therefore, I cannot lie to please you. I must tell the truth in the sight of God. I am the son of God. A woman in the audience now cried out. I knew it. <laughs> I mean, he's a good speaker in moments, but, uh, for fuck's sake. Uh, shortly afterwards, Christian disciples depart in their Buick station wagon. Southern California. Ah, that's, I knew, that's what, okay. That's the car of Christ, the station wagon, got it. Now in the paper he wrote about uh, all of this, Catton would make an observation that while many of the people did attend the meeting as spectators, a lot of people there seemed genuinely concerned about whether or not Krishna was Christ. He classified the audience as belonging to two groups, seekers and observers. Seekers wanted to know religious truths. Observers just wanted to see a show. I guess I'd be an observer. Uh, seekers were surprisingly, to me at least, less likely to become church members or to be church members, uh, attended church less often than observers, more frequently read the Bible and were more inclined to believe in the possibility of the second coming and often thought about where and how they would spend eternity. They were also lonelier or slightly more apprehensive about societal issues like war and economic depression. In short, they had strong religious interests but did not belong to organized religion. Those impulses were not fed into the normal channels and they were also maybe a bit more neurotic. They were also more prone to come to second and third meetings than observers, though the number of observers grew as the meetings went on. You know, probably haven't heard about something ridiculous and they wanted to get a better look at. All in all, the seekers were the people that Catton predicted would become followers. And his data from the questionnaires matched up with this. One question was, how likely are you to believe that Krishna was Christ? Attendees answered it after each meeting. The seekers on average reported being more and more likely after every meeting, while the observers reported being less and less likely. In response to one questionnaire item, what do you think was the main thing that you got out of coming to this meeting? There were several different responses. Satisfaction of Krishna being the Christ was one. So that's a bummer. Uh, a lovely, friendly feeling and a light heart. Okay. Uh, satisfaction that he is a fraud. Bingo. And several respondents actually said that he was an antichrist. Uh, also in 1952, the cult helps victims of an earthquake now. The Bakersfield earthquake of August 22nd, 1952 shook the city to its foundation. It was an aftershock of the Kern County earthquake from 33 days earlier. That was a 7.3 magnitude earthquake that killed 12 and wounded hundreds. 
this smaller quake of 5.8 damaged scores of buildings, killed two, seriously injured at least 35. And the fountain rushed in to help. Uh, there were 11 in the party and they came in two cars, the Californian reported. They were led by a very tall, barefooted gentleman in a yellow robe. They call him Master. <laughs> the party included several women also in robes and barefooted. The master and his party were immediately uh, uh, or went immediately to the police station from where they called Tom Wingate, chairman of the Bakersfield Red Cross chapter, to offer their services. When it was suggested that the situation appeared to be under control, the master said quietly, there is always work to be done. The men are trained in every conceivable type of field service and rescue work, the newspaper reported. And the women are trained as nurses and can do kitchen work and take care of children. We will go anywhere, anywhere the disaster strikes, whether it be a great fire, an earthquake, a flood, or a plane crash, the master told the Californian. What an odd way for them to recruit and get their name out, disaster relief. What if this cult had gotten big enough to have uh, really helped with Hurricane Katrina many years later, right? And then now New Orleans, uh, you know, is quickly and completely rebuilt, but super infested with robe-wearing fountain cult members. Hmm, is it worth it? Strange to think about. Uh, also in 1952, Sister Nerea joins her mother, Helena, at the fountain. Helena had been living there since earlier that year. At the time, Nerea was married to a man named Hugh, had two daughters, Alinda and Kathy. When Hugh got wind of what was going on, he headed down to the fountain, uh, got Alinda and Kathy the fuck on out of there on August 30th, 1952, and then would get full custody. They would never return to the compound. So good man. Hail Hugh and hail Nimrod. Uh, Sister Audrey, John Fisher's mother, the guy who wrote the book that has been our main source for this cult, joined the fountain in 1953. According to John, mom was not really into religion and she was fairly intelligent. Her handwriting was beautiful. She could do just about any crossword. She could make wedding dresses, Levi pants, and was a terrible cook. Is it just me or is that a fucking weird combo of attributes <laughs> to, to list in the opening of a bio? He continued with, although she dropped out of 10th grade, which she uh, did supposedly because she refused to wear gym shorts because she was afraid people might make fun of her knees. Okay. She did manage to have six kids, gave the first up for adoption, and kept the rest of us to be raised in a fruitcake cult. <laughs> ah, but it was fun times. Was she fairly intelligent? The woman who dropped out of uh, school because other students might make fun of her knees? Ah, she seems a little nuts. March 29th, 1953, the first annual convention of the Fountain of the World begins in Box Canyon, California. Members celebrate Easter, Christmas, and the New Year, all in one three-day service in March. And they initiate new members into their priesthood. May 31st, 1953, Krishna Venta leaves for Canada, stopping in Boise, Idaho, along the way. Probably drove right past the Suck Dungeon. Right? Probably just uh, fucking headed up uh, Highway 95. Uh, in Boise, a woman named, that's pretty weird to think about, actually. I, did, I didn't connect that when I was doing the research. That just uh, you know, right past a place where I I grab lunch often. It's right off of the Highway 95. He was just zipping along there. Actually, there's a couple of places I guess to eat off 95. And at one point, he was driving right past that area. Uh, Boise, a woman named Sister Barbara would join. This is how she described first seeing uh, the master. We met Krishnaventa when my dad Merritt had just been diagnosed with cancer, and the doctors said that he had six months to live. My mother Muriel was absolutely beside herself. When Sunday came, Mom and I went to our usual Church of Religious Science in the historic Owyhee Plaza Hotel in Boise, Idaho, and in came this tall fellow with long hair, a beard, and a yellow robe. It was 1953, and no one, and I do mean absolutely no one, dressed in anything except proper attire. Yeah, especially in Boise. This Church of Religious Science that uh, she refers to is part of that new thought movement I mentioned earlier. Uh, its core teaching is that God is all there is in the universe, not just present in heaven or in assigned deities as believed by traditional teachings, its power can be used by all humans to the extent that they recognize and align themselves with its presence. 
Its founder, Ernest Holmes, who established the church in 1926, said, God is not a person, but a universal presence already in our soul, already operating through our own consciousness. And uh, I actually, actually like that quite a bit. God is universal presence everywhere, part of everything. Just wanted to point out what that church uh, was to illustrate how Sister Barbara was already part of a non-traditional school of religious thought when she met Krishna, which is, of course, going to make her much more open to his teachings. She continued saying, I was barely 22 years old, quite immature for my age. The first thing KB did was go around the room of about 20 people and ask us what our philosophy was. Each of us, of course, said to follow Jesus' teachings. And he said that was right. After the service, mom said, I want to meet him. Come with me. I dutifully did and heard mom ask him if he did any healing. He said, quote, some. <laughs> anyway, after they chatted, Krishna said, bring him to my hotel room tomorrow afternoon. I love a uh, uh, some. <laughs> do I do any healing? Ah, a little some. I do a little some, you know, a little something, some from time to time. To me, that's proof right there. This guy's full of shit. I mean, do I heal? Yeah, but I don't, I don't hear everybody. You know, it's not like part of my like normal routine. It's not part of like my main plan. You know, my ways are uh, mysterious. Maybe I'll fucking heal your dad and maybe I'll let him die. It depends on my mood. It depends on his immune system and what doctors, you know, say is possible. I mean, you know, it depends on mysterious wisdom and stuff. Uh, then she writes, that night I got into the car before mom did. When she got in, she said that Christian told her that he was Christ. Well, I about hit the ceiling. I said, what? Mom and dad both believed him. Dad had been praying for the Christ to come and heal him and felt that his prayers had been answered. Dad went to the hotel room the next day, even after hearing what mom said. And when he saw KV, he knew that he was Christ and said he cried like a baby. Oh boy. A couple in the church asked Krishna Venta and Mother Ruth to stay with them at their home while she was in Boise. So KV began giving lectures uh, every evening at the couple's home and mom and I went to them. All I can really remember about the lectures is that they were spellbinding. I also think he did refer to the, uh, refer to gathering the elect. So eventually, Krishna Venta went back to California and Mural and Merritt kept in touch. Krishna soon sent brother uh, Isaiah and brother Samuel up to Boise to take the couple back in a car. Barbara stayed behind initially. More on Merritt being healed or not soon. Merritt Mural arrived in the compound or at the compound August 14th. That week, there was a huge fire in the town of uh, Tel... Oh my gosh. Tehachapi. Tehachapi. Uh, a little over 100 miles to the north, where the commune once again volunteered to help support the firefighters. There, uh, they helped fight a fire in Fillmore, and, or then they helped help to fire. Oh my God, I can't talk. Then they helped fight a fire. My brain was still stuck on uh, <laughs> Tehachapi. My brain was stuck on why is there so many fucking difficult words in this country? There's just, it's just, it, it, it is a melting pot. And man, so many fucking different languages and stuff influence so many of these uh, geographical areas and towns and stuff, which is cool until you try and say the words. Um, okay, so they, they fight the fire in the Fillmore, August 18th, then another fire in San Bernardino from the 25th to September 1st, then another fire September 6th. Meanwhile, Merritt and Muriel keep pestering Barbara to come down and join them. She doesn't want to. Later, she said she liked the idea initially of being around a bunch of young men there, but the picture she saw of them showed them wearing long hair, beards, which wasn't her thing. But then her sister, um, with whom that she shared an apartment, gets engaged. Now she, uh, you know, hasn't, doesn't have a place to stay, really wants to meet some dudes. Uh, also, with her sister moving in uh, with her new husband, uh, Barbara, yeah, she, she, I already said that. She has nowhere to go, so she goes to the fountain. And to her surprise, loves it. Especially loves a young man that she was introduced to named Alvin. She goes to work in the nursery where there were around seven kids to take care of. Then she would start working in the laundry, in the kitchen, in the sewing room. Meanwhile, from October to December 1953, Krishna would be traveling from San Diego to Denver to San Francisco, constantly looking for new recruits. 
right? Fund, fund that cult, get some more money. On March 29th, 1954, once again, that three-day celebration, Peter Kamenoff marries Sister Naria. Peter, Peter. So much more on him in a bit. Uh, by April of 1954, there will be approximately 135 members in the cult. Men, women, children living on the compound. Summer of 1954, Krishna visits Washington, D.C. Then in October, visits New York City. A newspaper ad in the uh, New York Times on October 2nd called for crowds to join him for three nights of dynamite truths delivered by Krishna Venta. The three topics he'd be speaking about were war is not for me. Let us make money and die. <laughs> and my love lies sleeping. If you truly wish to cultivate peace, it said, do not miss these three lectures. Yeah, sounds really informative and not even a little bit crazy. He would stay in New York until December. No word on how, how well recruiting goes, so probably not good. November 18th, 1954, Merritt, Barbara's dad, husband of Muriel, dies of cancer. What? But what about Frank Jesus' healing powers? Well, since it was a year later than the doctors had predicted, both Barbara and Muriel think it is a miracle. It's a miracle he has lived that extra year, a miracle from Krishnaventa, a.k.a. Jesus. And I got to say, what a shitty miracle. Right? It sounds like a pretty low-rent deity, right? Can you save me, God? Yes, my child, but like only for about a year. Listen, fighting cancer is super hard, and it wears me out. What? Uh, December of 1954, back in Box Canyon, Chris Venta, back from New York now, declares that a negative wave is coming from Mongolia <laughs> and orders cult members that they are not to have food, water, or work until the wave passes, only chanting every two hours. Uh, sources don't indicate how long they had to fight this fucking badass negative wave. Must not have been too long because no one died from dehydration or starvation. And now, perhaps with the lectures not drawing as much attention as he was hoping for, Krishna Venta decides to get a bit more outrageous and decides to crucify himself, kind of. On March 30th, he carries a 60-pound cross while wearing a robe of brown sackcloth. His wavy hair flows around his face as he staggers up a 125-foot hill in front of a bunch of onlookers. As he stumbles, cult members kick and beat him, reenacting the biblical scene. He then has cult members acting as Romans hoist him up on the cross where he will sit on a bicycle seat, fake nails sticking out of his hands and, and legs, ketchup running down his body, like literally ketchup. So kind of not really crucifies himself. More of a more of a fucking mockery, really, of being crucified. More of a disrespectful cosplay crucifixion. Uh, candles illuminate this corny ass scene. A small crowd of non-members gather to watch the spectacle. They've been drawn to the event by newspaper and radio advertisements that the group had put out in the days before. I can only imagine how much laughter they tried to hold in. A voice on a loudspeaker narrated what was happening. Women began to sing. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? I don't know the melody. That's the words. Actors then carried uh, Krishna down and the reenactment was over. On the valley floor, Krishna wrapped himself in a warm robe with Ruth and two other women at his side. He, he vanished into his quarters to recover. Now, now back to Frank Jesus' legal drama. September 25th, 1955, a court decision is given by Justice Roger Trainer of the California Supreme Court regarding Krishna and Lucille's divorce. He's fucking still, deal still dealing with this. Still she's still trying to get back child support payments from this fucking deadbeat. The ruling would be particularly illuminating when it came to uh, how holy this dickhead really was or wasn't. When plaintiff obtained the interlocu interlocutory, ah, fuck that word, uh, decree, presumably at the time of the divorce in 1944, defendant told her that he would plan his life accordingly so he would be protected. Uh, he said that he would form this organization where people would give all their possessions into the organization and he would be the head of the organization. Nothing would be in his name. Everything would be in the name of the organization. 
yet he would have them arrange for all the money he wanted to use anytime he wanted it. So, what a weasel. Uh, defendant's principal uh, contention is that he has neither money nor property nor earnings and that he is therefore without ability to pay the increased amounts. At no time has he contended that he is unable to earn sufficient money to support the children. In 1941 and 1942, he was employed at the shipyards in Oakland as a timekeeper. And at the time of the divorce, he was working as a machinist helper for about $75 a week. Shortly after the divorce, he changed his name to Krishnaventa and founded a religious society, the WKFL Fountain. The letters stand for Wisdom, Knowledge, Faith, and Love. The society was incorporated in 1951 and is governed by a board of directors and officers. Defendant is the treasurer of the society and its spiritual leader or master. Neither he nor anyone connected with the society receives a salary as such. About 100 members reside at a home maintained by the society at Canoga Park in Ventura County. They have a communal system of living and none of them works on the outside. All food, clothing, and medical care are provided by the society. Funds are obtained from new members who transfer all their property to the society on being admitted to membership and from gifts, plays presented by the members, I forgot that they were charging for those plays, and donations received for fighting fires. Defendant and his present wife and their young daughter occupy a small room and five other children of defendants sleep in a garage made into a bedroom with three other children living at the society's home. Defendant makes periodic automobile trips to Denver to carry on the work of the society. Occasionally, he stops... <laughs> at Las Vegas and Reno to gamble. And on some occasions, the society and various persons have advanced him money for that purpose, but he has never won. <laughs> what? He's taking his followers' money and gambling in Vegas and Reno. That's a new one. And never wins. What kind of Jesus can't beat the fucking dealers in blackjack or pick the right number on the roulette wheel? Oh my God, this is the Vegas stuff I alluded to earlier. In Las Vegas, he once lost $2,900 and in payment, <laughs> and in payment, drew checks on a bank in which he had no funds. The society paid part of the amount due on the checks, and no civil action or criminal charges were then brought against defendant for issuing them. God, this fucker was gambling on money he didn't even have. <laughs> Just and he, our picture was he wearing his yellow saffron robe in the casinos too? You know how fucking weird would that be? Just to walk into a casino and you see this Jesus-looking dude, long hair, big beard, you know, this robe. Oh, come on! How can you hit 21 that many times in a row? No one's that lucky. You're cheating. The devil's helping you. Only the devil could beat me, Jesus. Seven straight hands. Uh, the judge continued with the society paid the cost of a trip by defendant to Europe in 1949, a trip to South America in 1951, and trips in 1952 to 54 cities in the U.S. to study, in the United States, to study fire equipment and fire departments and to advance the cause of the society. A member of the board of directors usually accompanies him on trips and handles temporal matters. For all contributions, excuse me, uh, for all contributions that he receives and for all his expenditures, defendant accounts to the board of directors, and there is no evidence of unauthorized use of society funds. The society pays all of defendant's expenses, including the $60 per month for the support of his children ordered at the criminal proceeding, and at the time of the proceeding, it also supplied him with funds with which to buy gifts for his children, ice skates costing $65 for his daughter, and a wristwatch, tennis shoes, and other gifts for his son. It also paid the fees for his attorney in both the 1951 and present proceedings. Well, this judge would rule that Francis was guilty of not paying child support. He did pay support, but not all the support he's supposed to, and he was to be taken to jail. This would make some of his followers question why he was in charge of their spiritual enlightenment, right? He clearly gambled. Uh, they also found out he smoked, smoking uh, cigars and cigarettes, had a laundry list of vices. 
I don't know why my stomach will not fucking stop uh, making it, uh, but preached to them that they were supposed to live pure and noble lives. His attorneys undoubtedly paid for by the foundation, got him out of jail on the child support charges, but then he was sued for $4,300 in back rent for the Box Canyon property. He resolved this only to be hauled back into court again in Ventura County and ordered to now pay $50 per month in back payments for his now two grown children with Lucille. He appealed and won. It was ruled that he didn't have to increase his support of $20 each month as the judge had ordered. An interesting dissent, though, was filed by one judge at the time of the appeal stating that any father can now enter a religious cult where property is owned communally and escape payment for the support of children. Uh, March of 1956 now, Barbara, who along with Alvin and their son, Karan, uh, left to live in Chicago. She married a fellow cult member, so she found a dude, and then they both left the cult. But soon, things were not, will not work out with Alvin, and she will return with her kids. Uh, July 10th, 1956, Christian Deventa leaves with a small group of Fountain members, heads to Canada to find land on which to wait out the incoming race war and subsequent nuclear war with the Russians and probably get out of the country where his ex-wife just fucking will not leave him alone when it comes to old child support. Uh, no properties are found in Canada, so they head west to Fairbanks, Alaska, arriving on July 29th and then continuing south to Homer. At this time, there are about 140 cult members in total. Uh, Venta would tell the newspaper there that they wanted to get out of the rat race in the big city. And they felt <laughs> felt like Alaska, uh, there would be lots uh, of work for them. He listed the group's goals as spiritual upliftment, economic security, spiritual love, scientific development, huh? service, and not having to pay more fucking child support. My God, she's bleeding me dry. No, maybe not the last one, but the rest for sure. By the fall, he had announced plans to move to the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska. Members filed homestead claims made a theological change by announcing that they would now wear shoes in the 20 degree below zero winters. <laughs> Suddenly they're not worried about nervous breakdowns now that they're no longer living in sandal weather. Uh, how convenient for them to suddenly change, you know, one of their beliefs. Uh, Chris Naventa was not going to accompany the majority of members who went to Alaska. Uh, he, he'll visit, but he's not going to live up there. It's alleged that he wanted to get uh, homesteads up there for members so they could start farming to make some more money for the foundation. You know, until uh, they could make that farm money, he planned to have them entertain people in bars and taverns, singing songs and dancing, playing the gut bucket, the guitar, the banjo, and the bass. Maybe air banjo. Blink, ding, 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 ding. Krishna Frank is Jesus. Krishna Frank is wearing his sandals now. Not worried about nervous breakdowns because it gets too cold. Uh, whether they were farming or entertaining, uh, at least they'd be gone. He could fuck their wives. They probably weren't singing that. Bring to the link, bring, 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 bring. He's fucking our wives in California. Uh, apparently the people he was uh, going to send to Alaska are mostly men, right? Mostly uh, men who are the husbands of attractive women, women who will stay behind in Box Canyon and be introduced to Frank Jesus's God hog. By September 17th, 1956, Krishna had returned from his exploratory trip up north. Construction work had begun on a new headquarters uh, back in Box Canyon, always building new stuff. Soon, Krishna declares that he's going to take the first 40 fountain members to stay in Alaska in February of 1957. Uh, I guess, I mean, it's, it's so confusing again because of the way the sources write about this stuff. Sounds like there was a couple people for an exploratory trip, make some plans, come back, wait a little bit, now 40 go up. In the meantime, he's going to head to Denver, uh, leaving the members to grapple with fire season back in California. March 8th, 1957, Ed Clark from the Oxnard Courier arrives to take some pics of cult members loading up to head to Alaska. Doesn't seem like everyone will find what they're looking for in Alaska. May 5th, 1957, a member named Jerry Goldberg, he's had enough. Returns from Alaska, signs a release for all his possessions and leaves with just his car. Uh, another member, Joseph Burton, is kicked out on June 15th. But according to John, we let Joseph back in the next day. 
Very few of the members could survive in the outside world alone. And in truth, it was this fear of the outside world that kept many people at the fountain. Yep. Uh, David Allen was the next to leave Alaska in June. A man named Vernon followed in July. More men follow. Soon there was a shortage of men in the Alaska group. Krishna Venton would now lecture to the women. Ladies, ladies, please close your Bibles. Listen to me as I speak from my Jesus heart. I want you to start sucking my dick more, a lot more. I'm Jesus for Christ's sake. And if Jesus wants his dick sucked, Jesus should get his dick sucked. Do you have any idea how many women around the world love Jesus? I got millions of women who would kill someone to suck my dick. Yet here I sit with a dry dick, not in anyone's mouth. Unbelievable and unacceptable. Did I say I wanted to speak from my heart? I meant groin. Now that I have said my piece, please, we can open our Bibles back up. Uh, No, that's not what he said, of course. Here's what he said. The women will have to take the place of men around the fountain now that we have a shortage of men. There is no difference between men and women, only passion. Uh, Okay. Uh, Know what your capacity of lifting is and apply yourselves. Always wear pants. Go in pairs. Watch your movements. Don't be suggestive. My God. In your weak moments, go to someone who is strong. Do everything in pairs. Erica is to stay away from Herbert. She is to continue to watch the children. I love that he singles out Erica and Herbert. Listen, ladies, I know you get horny sometimes. Watch your movements. Keep pants on. You know, protects your vaginas. And also, Erica, you and Herb, mm mm-mm. Stay away from each other. I see what you're doing. Uh, apparently, Erica had introduced a teenage Herbert to the foundation and had the hots for him, even though she was much older, exact age, not given. Herbert was attending college in UCLA. Krishna told Herbert that Erica was not right for him. He also ordered her to keep her hands and other body parts away from Herbert, which is probably why she kept beating the crap out of us kids in the nursery, John Fisher will later say in the book he wrote about growing up there. This place. Uh, over the over the summer of 1957, Frank Jesus keeps sending more and more men to Alaska, right? Trying to fucking balance out the ratios up there. Also keeping more and more women for himself in California. Also that summer, things not going great with uh, Naria and Peter Kamenoff's marriage. Peter had been working outside the fountain for almost a year now at this point. He was uh, still in Box Canyon, still participating in group activities, still out soliciting for money. But also, you know, having to work uh, outside to bring them money and he's horny and sad. Naria had recently kicked Peter out of bed. She wasn't going to fuck him anymore. She tried to convert him to the concept of a spiritual marriage on Krishna Venta's advice where they would be married but not have sex ever again. Peter was starting to wonder if the master was fucking his wife. Uh, he moves to Alaska in July after breaking it off with Naria and he will send her a bunch of letters. Naria misses him. She leaves for Alaska on August 10th. When she gets there, she finds out that Peter has left the fountain base in Alaska to find work elsewhere because there's not enough to do there. On August 24th, Ralph Muller now arrives in Homer, Alaska with a letter for Naria from Peter. He wants her to follow him and leave the cult. She doesn't want to. September 8th, Peter shows up at Naria's cabin in Homer, shouting, threatening to take their son, Aaron, if she won't go with him. Naria's terrified of this possibility because she's already lost custody of two daughters, right, with Hugh. When she joined the fountain, the two get into a fight. It turns physical. Then when Peter leaves, Naria heads to the group's Alaska headquarters where the master is staying during one of his visits. And he tells her to hang on to her son, let Peter leave. He has her stay at headquarters with him. And I'm guessing, you know, probably fucks her a bunch. Late 1957, Peter, Ralph, Ralph's wife, Patricia, move back to California where Patricia gets a job as a school teacher. They're all out of this cult. From time to time, Peter and Ralph will visit the commune with Peter attempting to see his son, Aaron, but the master keeps blocking his efforts. Now, Peter and Ralph try to wake up some of the other members to who this terrible leader really is. They've, you know, done a bunch of digging, asked a bunch of questions. And they found out a bunch of shit. They point out that all the times that Krishna disappears with a woman, sometimes a, a woman's wife, he is probably fucking them. Uh, 
They talk about he uses their money for cigars and gambling. The master tells his flock that these men are liars, false prophets, recruiting members for their own breakaway sect. They want to be the cult leaders. Uh, He tells them they're horrible women beaters and more. On October 14th now, Krishna gives some lectures in Los Angeles. A little break from the uh, Peter story. We'll return to that. Uh, He appears on Paul Coates' TV program, the 10th and the 11th of November, then completes a lecture series in LA on November 25th. Back at the compound. Things are getting more and more apocalyptic. He tells the group that uh, every 40,000 years, there is a downfall. We are now entering the sixth downfall. Downfall means a natural condition, which brings about a revitalizing of man. Strange things happen in the heavens every 40,000 years. There is a vast force causing this earth to rotate on its axis, and it moves at 1,000 miles per hour. Every 40,000 years, our earth moves between the two suns, <laughs> which is the purification plan. Uh, uh, out of it, <laughs> this is the way it's written, which is a purification plan out of it will come an earthquake, which will have a strange reaction upon the earth. All man-made buildings will be treated as dust. They will be so easily moved. All buildings will be lowered to this earth and there will be no security in the hills for they will also fall. We are now in the throes of Armageddon after which there will be a thousand years of peace. No minister can save your soul. We are the only ones who can save it. Cult, cult, cult. And we can do it by doing good. Others who were to have gathered the 144,000 elect and bring about the United Order failed their mission. They must be gathered and sealed by 1965. Man, that was a lot. I don't remember our solar system having two suns, by the way. Uh, the earth does spin around at about 1,000 miles an hour, though. He got, he got some of that right. Uh, December 8th, 1958, Peter Kamenoff. Now we're back with Peter. He's 42. Ralph Muller, 33. They are fucking sick of trying to speak reason to cult members. Peter very frustrated, not being able to see his son. And they decide to go to the authorities. They visit the office of James H. Mulvey, special agent for the California Attorney General in Los Angeles. When Mulvey's secretary rings him, she says she has two men. <laughs> she says there are two men here who want to make a complaint against Jesus Christ. Seriously, that's what they said. They said they needed to complain about the Christian Lord and Savior. He wasn't the man of the Bible that he claimed to be. This is going to be good. Mulvey was skeptical. <laughs> he heard their tale, of course. Ralph and Peter said that they believed that Krishna was Jesus, uh, really was Christ. But that, that, that wasn't what was bothering them. It's just that, you know, uh, something must have gone wrong with his reincarnation because he was doing things that OG Christ never thought of doing. Mulvey had to be careful not to show his doubt on his face. And I imagine not burst out, you know, just laughing. Having had experience with cults, he, uh, you know, he told them, like, go on. They claim that Krishna had sexual relationships with numerous female members, including girls under the age of consent, right? Cult, cult, cult. Uh, so fucking extra weird for me to think about all this going on while a show like Leave It to Beaver is being made not far away, right? That TV series started being broadcast over a year before these guys were making this complaint. And it was being filmed, you know, less than 25 miles away as this is all happening. Father Knows Best, another wholesome 50s TV series also being broadcast, filmed at this time about 30 miles away. This is just so not the 50s, I imagine, when I think of the 1950s. This is uh, not the nostalgic 50s diner type of 50s I think about. This is all happening a a solid decade before the counterculture revolution. Well, the guys add that Frank Jesus uh, tried to make, you know, his affairs with women seem okay by declaring that he was in spiritual marriages with all these women. The guy said that this has happened to their wives. Uh, They finally realized that whenever they went to fight a fire, Krishna was grabbing their wives and fucking them. And not all of these interactions sounded completely consensual. Ralph said, my wife also told me that he slept with her one night and it became so rough she could not explain it. She said his approach was so crude she just had to get away from him. That was before we were married. 
but he still thinks that this guy's Jesus. You know, he's worried that Jesus has changed. The fucking mental hurdles these guys are jumping over is unreal. I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I love Jesus, sir. Uh, Frank is Jesus. Oh boy, howdy he is. I just, I just was hoping you could talk to Jesus and maybe just ask him to stop sleeping with everyone, you know? I mean, officer, at least ask Jesus to stop sleeping with the kids, you know, uh, Jesus and my wife, our wives, golly, if you could just get Jesus to promise he'll stop sexing up the kids and the wives, boy, how do we be much obliged? Uh, the guys told Special Agent Mulvey that they didn't believe Christian's explanation for why he was sleeping with everyone's wives. <laughs> he told them that he was cold-blooded and needed somebody to keep his body warm. <laughs> yeah, 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 this is great. That's, that was his real excuse, apparently. Guys, 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 yes, you caught me. Okay, you caught me sleeping with your wives, all right? (laughs) But listen, not out of any adulterous desire. Hear me out. I just, this is embarrassing, but uh, I'm reptilian. Yeah, yeah, there it is. I said it. Yeah, Jesus is a lizard person. It's crazy, right? So, you know, I'm cold-blooded. Not metaphorically, like literally. Especially my appendages, especially my lizard donkey dong, uh, my cold, cold horse popsicle cock. And it could fall off if I don't stick it in a safe, warm place. And I know you might be thinking, but wait a minute, you already have a wife. I know I do. But, and you got to keep this a secret. She's also cold-blooded, kind of, just her holes. She has cold, cold lizard holes. And we can have kids, sure, you know, but I can't warm up my profit snake, you know? I got to reheat my meat, so to speak, after Spelunka Dunk Duncan in her ice cave, or I'm going to die. And then Satan will win. Is that what you want? So yeah, that's why I do it. That's the best story I can come up with real quick. I mean, that's the truth. Uh, They also described how he practiced medicine without a license. (laughs) Or I guess did not practice medicine. They said he allowed a lot of uh, sick cult members to die from lack of medical attention. After hearing them out, Mulvey had one question. How hot are your wives? Really paint a picture for me. Every detail is important. No, he asked, uh, what do you want me to do? Ralph and Peter said that they wanted authorities to keep them, uh, to help them get their wives and money back. They also wanted Krishna to be barred from practicing medicine. They volunteered to help in any way they could by getting a confession, for example. And then the guys paused, exchanged little glances and admitted that they actually did want something else. And the conversation now took a darker tone. They told Special Agent Mulvey that it would be good for society if Krishna Venta could be, quote, eliminated. He was tarnishing his group's name and he was tarnishing Christ's name. Mulvey later said he thought that they were using a metaphor when they used the word eliminated. So he didn't, you know, pay this call for the master's death too much attention. He said the attorney general's office had started an investigation and additional evidence, uh, any evidence that the men could bring them would be, you know, welcome and appreciated. And they did, you know, start an investigation. He'd already put it together on orders from Edmund G. Brown, the attorney general of California. At the time of this little exchange, uh, the dossier read, Case B, 1610. Krishna Venta, alias Frank Jessen, alias Francis H. Pensivik, alias Ben Kovic. Uh, six and a half feet tall, 180 pounds, blue eyes, tattoo on left forearm. Born March 29th, 1911, San Francisco. Arrested El Paso, 1930. Burglary. Little Rock, 1931. Petty larceny. Los Angeles, 1932. Petty theft. San Francisco, 1934. Vagrancy. Miami, 1935. Man Act. Uh, uh, Phoenix, 1934, writing threatening letters to the president. Uh, Santa Paula, 1942, fictitious checks. Stockton, 1942, psychological ob- ob- observation. East Los Angeles, 1949, failure to provide. Also indication of trouble in Nicaragua, New York, London, Sweden, Italy, suggest FBI check. 
So, you know, holy shit, a lot more than I've already went over. Uh, Mulvey told the men that any information they had on Krishnavent to the better chances that a case against him could begin, you know, as soon as possible. Ralph and Peter agreed, but then privately, the two guys decided they would do more than just gather information, a lot more. They decided now to take matters into their own hands. December 9th, 1958, Ralph appears at an oil well supply company in Whittier, telling the clerk he's buying supplies to be used in some blasting. Ralph and Peter then drive to a cheap, no-name motel on the outskirts of uh, Tarzana, less than five miles from the Box Canyon compound. They arrive before dusk in a rickety pickup truck. Hunkered down in their room, Peter writes farewell letters to his loved ones, including his young son, Aaron. I am willing to give up my life to free you. Then, using a tape recorder, they document some martyr statements as the tape words. It is now 7.30 p.m., notes Ralph. Within the next four hours, he will drive to Box Canyon, see Krishna, or sorry, we will, and then demand a right adjustment to be made. This may be our last night in the world. Dear God, give us freedom or death. 20 sticks of dynamite, three detonators, batteries, blasting caps, and electric cable sat in their truck. They'd made a, uh, made a bomb. And now they made their way to the compound. They arrive in Box Canyon around midnight, December 10th, 1958. In the administrative building, they confront Krishna, telling him they knew what he was up to and he needs to make a fucking public confession about all his sins. And Ventna refuses, even laughs in their faces. He says he has already informed his loyal followers of the lies that Peter and Ralph are telling about him. He told the true believers that Peter and Ralph were the real sinners, the ones who had been preying on the group's women, right? That motherfucker spins it on him. Knowing the Christian eventer, eventer is never going to change his ways, Ralph and Peter now decide to kill him and detonate the crude bomb they had made. How exactly they did this is unclear, but they fucking did it. Ralph Peter, Krishnaventa, and seven other people are immediately blown to fucking pieces. Several other members also badly burned. These guys blew this cult leader the fuck up, literally. The brick building they were in also demolished, injuring some others who've been sleeping inside. Barbara, Sister Barb, living in a nearby women's dorm, is awakened by a loud bang. When she sees the flame, she said, apparently, oh, look out there. It's positively beautiful out there. God, these people are weird. Uh, yeah, Barb, that's a normal reaction, sure. Uh, her bunkmate, Priest Letta, said, I think we better find out where the beautiful is coming from. Mm-hmm. I feel like Priest Letta might have uh, added in her in her mind, you fucking lunatic. Uh, it was chaos as everyone ran from building to building trying to figure out what's going on. Everyone wanted to know if uh, Krishna Venta was okay, where is the master? Meanwhile, another Box Canyon resident, Mrs. Dorothy Ham, was the first to call the Ventura County Sheriff's Office in Chatsworth. At around 1.30 in the morning, she exclaimed that something has exploded where those strange people live. Other callers wanted to know if the nearby Rocketdyne plant had blown up or if the Russians had dropped a hydrogen bomb on American Aviation's experimental testing station near Chatsworth. Uh, the local undersheriff dispatched a deputy to the Fountain of the World's compound. The deputy reports back that a major disaster has occurred at the religious colony. An explosion has completely destroyed the organization's main building, set fire to a nearby dorm, and started a blaze that was now sweeping through the woods. The fire department as well as ambulances are dispatched. The local cult volunteer firefighters would also be helping if they hadn't just been exploded. Uh, the California Highway Patrol is on its way. Within 30 minutes, 200 firefighters are battling a blaze in the woods. Uh, there would be no saving of the many of the buildings. All that remained of the old headquarters, once a solid two-story stone structure, was part of a fireplace and one shattered wall of rock. The entire front of the nearby dormitory had been blown off, half of it charred by fire. Wandering through the wreckage are some long-haired, bearded men and women in handkerchiefs, all of them barefoot. Uh, Lael, Krishna's eight-year-old son, tells officers on the scene that his father has died in the blast. They also interview Princess Mary, a one-time Broadway actress who left the stage to follow Vetna. 
or Venta when he appeared at the uh, theater she was working. She insisted that Master Venta was still amongst his followers, though she they couldn't tell what she meant. Was he alive or was it just, you know, metaphorically? All she would say is that he was everywhere as pure spirit. <laughs> oh boy. Can you imagine trying to fucking work with these people to figure out a crime scene? Uh, where is he? Everywhere as pure spirit. After her, they spoke to Brother Martin, a colony member who said that something strange had happened with two men, Paul and Ralph. He had heard raised voices from the administrative building, which he found odd because speaking harshly was against the rules. Brother Martin was the one who would tell the officers who was in the building when it exploded and who had died. The next interview was with Bishop Isaiah, John Fisher's stepdad. Isaiah announced that he would do nothing to try to bring whoever was responsible to justice, since that would be against the fountain's principles. If they found that person, they would just invite them in and offer them love. Okay. But of course, you know, both people responsible had already been invited in and both were dead. By this time, FBI men and deputies from the LA County Sheriff's Office had arrived, also start interviewing members. An explosives expert would figure out that the bomb was probably made from gelatin dynamite, a much more explosive form of dynamite than the regular kind. In the days that followed the blast, the remaining cult members knelt in the charred ruins to pray for hours a day. Ruth would tell investigators that Krishna himself had predicted 18 years earlier that he would be cremated in 1958. Sure he did. He probably made predictions for every year that he was going to die. Do not use the word dead, she told them. He is the Christ and we do not believe in death. She went on to say that Krishna's original body was probably in Meta Verde Valley at the foot of Mount Everest. Hello. Cool story, bro. Just read your Bible. It's all there. December 17th, the week after the blast, three children at the cult will be flown to Alaska to be reunited with their parents. A couple days later, all the kids are going to be required by authorities to go live with their parents and a process of reuniting begins. In the absence of Krishna Venta, Bishop Nakona and Brother Isaiah, Isaiah take charge of day-to-day operations of the group. The leader's dead, but the cult is not. Members of Founder of the World are, uh, will be pallbearers and mourners at the funeral of their leader, December 19th, 1958. Uh, the funeral and burial will take place in North Hollywood. We are trying very hard to react to this as the master would want us to, a pilgrim named Sister Mary told the press. That is to be cheerful and positive. Mourning is negative. And the cult would carry on again without Krishna. No Frank Jesus, no problem. They still had the Bible to guide them. Uh, an article published in the LA Times in March of 1959 wrote that the cult still numbered approximately 100 members who lived in a group of sprawling buildings in the barren Chatworth Hills, about 30 miles north of LA. The article would go on to mention hundreds of cults in the area due to the fact that in LA, anyone could found a church by paying a filing fee of 15 bucks. And the mild climate meant that outdoor activities could take place year round on a budget. Among those were the Holy Spirit Light Couch. (laughs) That was an actual cult name. Holy Spirit Light Couch. I hope that's not just a typo from a source. Founded by Josephine DeCroix Trusts, with members numbering around 75,000. The group believed in reincarnation and also attributed human, human evils to black atoms that found their way into people's auras. Fucking awe. Awesome. Uh, there was also Arthur L. Bell, founder of Mankind United Incorporated, which had assets valued at over $3 million. That feels like that one might have just been a tax loophole. Another was a prophet named C.M. Daddy Grace, who wore fingernails six inches long, drove a red and white striped Cadillac, and live with followers in an 85-room mansion. <laughs> that might have been just a way to avoid paying taxes. Too. So how did this cult survive? Well, some members simply claimed that Venta hadn't actually died. They said he was still alive. Identification of the dead bodies depended mainly on dental records. So they concocted a story that Venta had left his bridge work near his bed and fled before the blast took place. They said that since $10,000 they said that since $10, had also disappeared that night, that meant that Krishna Venta had obviously escaped with it you know, and not some random opportunist. 
In the meantime, Ruth took charge, led the cult members in rebuilding. She told him that Krishnaventa would return in two years. He would rebuild himself cell by cell. Okay. In the end, 35 cultists would wait, uh, you know, things out for well over a decade before it all fizzled out in the 70s, it seems. Living in the small buildings next to a sign that read, love one another, serve one another. Each day, six women would go door to door looking for donations. Twice a day, they would hold a concentration period during which they would recite the 11 core rules. Forget the outside world. Become familiar with the inside workings of oneself. Become unified with one another spiritually, mentally, and physically. Forget self. Forget selfish desires. Create a desire within oneself toward a higher spiritual equality. Obtain wisdom. Search for truth. Keep an open mind. Search for understandings in all things. Face problems without thought of escape. Become absorbed in love of all things, seen and unseen, and so fulfill the laws of God. Become teachers, not of the world, but in the world fountain, that all men who come out of the world shall find comfort in our midst. Uh, Also in 1959, a fire destroys the headquarters building at the Fount of Alaska. Ah, bummer. But it wouldn't completely wipe out their little Alaska sect. Some of the cultists still trying to create homesteads there in the early 60s, spurred on by periodic visits from Ruth. Mother Ruth, now the in charge. In the fall of 1961, brother Isaiah John Fisher and his mom returned to California. As the cult limps on, they become uh, they uh, lose more and more members. Soon, according to Barbara, it becomes like a wild west with no rules. Barbara would end up marrying a guy named Bob. Both of them would live at the fountain until the late sixties. They get jobs in the outside world, but still live on the compound rent free. Barbara continues uh, to think that Jesus and Krishna were the same person. Nineteen sixty eight, Charles Manson. Here we go. Some of the girls from his family reside for several months at the fountain of the world. Manson even made an unsuccessful takeover bid. And Todd, who lived at the Box Canyon compound for nearly the entirety of the night or the 60s with two daughters, uh, said that Charlie would sing and play his guitar for us and the girls would sing and harmonize. I complimented them one time because they did sing beautifully together. And 17-year-old daughter, Virginia Todd, told a reporter in 1969 that she never liked Manson. She said, I didn't like him the first time I saw him. He was always staring at me. Yeah, I bet. And kept asking me to come with him into his bus and hear him play the guitar. Mm Mm-hmm. The remnants of the fountain ended up calling the police to rid themselves of Manson and his family. Uh, Once booted from the compound, Manson and his family moved his group to nearby Spawn Movie Ranch, only about eight miles away, and the rest is history. And there was debate over how far the Christian Aventa's teachings influenced Manson's worldview. But, you know, strong parallels, as we pointed out, between Venta's predicted apocalypse and Manson's helter-skelter, a bloody race war where the whites lose, after which the faithful emerge from hiding and inherit the earth. Same year, Sun Myung Moon, And his followers also take up residence with the Fountain of the World community for several months. Born in 1920, Moon said that when he was 15, Jesus appeared to him and told him to take on an unspecified special mission on earth. He concluded he needed to go to Japan and to America so that I can let the world know the greatness of the Korean people, according to his later autobiography. Moon returned to South Korea, founded the Unification Church in 1954, another cult that became fucking huge. The Unification Church sought to create a harmoniously diverse new world order that would that would bond everyone in a big happy family. At the head of that unit was the charismatic Moon himself, known as the True Father, a veritable Adam, alongside his Eve wife Hak Chahan, aka the True Mother, born without original sin, capable of forging a new generation free from the same inherent stain. So that's pretty cool. Uh, Through mass arranged marriages and strict guidelines about sexual behavior, the organization infiltrated every part of a member's existence. Adherents were often called Moonies here in the West. 
Moon would go on to build a transcontinental business empire that rivals his unification church in scope and power. Uh, he'd go from cult leader to billionaire businessman. We should suck him someday. Time Magazine quoted him in 1976 as saying, the whole world is in my hand and I will conquer and subjugate the world. So luckily he didn't accomplish that. Uh, by 1969, the core cult in Box Canyon down to just 15 members living on the compound. There were a few dozen peripheral members still though. Three years later, 1972, few dozen members still hanging on and some of them leave the cult to join another cult jim jones's people's temple we're about 20 years later uh well what am i saying 20 years after the formation of the initial cult we're about uh six years later they drink the kool-aid and die in jonestown on november 18th 1978 what an odd life they led years in one weird ass cult lead to more years in another decades altogether, and then a mass suicide mass murder both krishna venta and jim jones claim to be jesus so maybe those members' minds already prepped to accept insane claims. For the last fountain members who didn't join the People's Temple, most would join an offshoot cult of Krishnaventa's followers. It would be called the Earth's Order of Melchizedek, E-O-O-M. Uh, Om might kind of still be around. Maybe a few members are still alive. If so, they still revere Krishnaventa. Last we heard they did under the name of Machi Venta uh, Melchizedek. Until sometime in the last few years, the group had a website that shared their teachings. One long testimony on the site written by someone calling herself Matia Melchizedek, birth name K. Franklin Hoyne, a woman who joined the fountain originally in 1957, shared how the group transitioned from fountain to ohm. And I feel like I need some, uh, some sound bit for this. This one, this reading needs it. Matthias said, after the fire in Alaska in 1959, the fountain structure began disintegrating as we began focusing on personal goals instead of community goals. I applied to the governing body, the acting court of apostles, for permission to open a fount in Santa Clara, California. I had gathered 20 brothers and sisters who were like-minded, and we were determined we were ready to introduce the fountain structure to another community. The acting court of apostles denied our request, and shortly thereafter began the dispersal of fountain personnel. Between the years 1962 and 1971, my Melchizedek education went into high gear. My mortal self learned of Tao flows, authority limitations, and how to recognize personal Melchizedek expression, while my Melchizedek self learned to deal with mortal limitation. On the spring equinox of 1971, I was initiated as Matia Melchizedek, and the constitution of Earth's order of Melchizedek was revealed by Machiventa Melchizedek, at a place called Ormoshovelhaken, Oregon. It's a fucking made-up word. A small group of believers gathered quickly, and we established a community in the hills above Clear Lake, California, where the Melchizedek calendar was revealed, and Melchizedek communicated with the heads of state of all the nations of the planet. That's cool. We were instructed to move to the Palm Springs Indio Desert, which we did, and soon grounded the first temple community of Earth's Order of Melchizedek where the first Earth Council Tao was grounded from which issued another Melchizedek communication to the planetary heads of state, and we were instructed concerning the architecture of the temple. This is quite a run on sense. The structure of the temple community and the ceremonies attendant to initiations and bestowals. The community, which we called the Garden of the Setting Sun, grew in less than a year from the founding eight to over 125. Fuck those fucking weirdos. They're back over 100. <laughs> these fucking weirdos who we know very little about then they moved to uh, somewhere near the Grand Canyon for a while 
you know, probably getting fucking their crystals charged with power and uh, then settle in Las Vegas, which uh, becomes headquarters of Oom. Vegas feels like a good place for them. The members all changed their last names to Melchizedek in 1978. In Vegas, they hope to uh, somehow take over the world, according to uh, Mattia. I am in contact sporadically with other living Melchizedeks, and we are, as yet, unable to achieve Melchizedek union. When we do reach union, we will quickly raise 70 to $100 million. That's a weird number range. To construct the Iyamayu community and rejuvenate Um, which is the pilot structure of the New World Order. Until such time as we achieve union, we will continue to live our separate lives. So, you know, still no New World Order for these people. I don't know. I hope I hope she got on some I hope she got the right meds and took them. It's unclear when the website was last updated before someone stopped uh, you know, paying to have it remain active. It was run by somebody named James G. Uh, Krutz, aka Abron, Abron Melchizedek. But it seems that he died in 2013. And with that, the remnants of the strange, strange little cult seem to have probably, not certainly, but probably died with him. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Uh, before I share a few final thoughts, let me first lift your spirits with the most popular, most important, maybe not popular, most important spiritual sponsor we've had thus far. Hello, truth seeker. Greetings, worshiper. Blessings and glory, I hope thy heart is full. You are no doubt familiar with the Holy Bible and perhaps also with its teachings. But are you familiar with the Holy Bible? Perhaps you have prayed to God. But have you ever prayed to God? Only in the Holy Bible will you find the true word of God. Perchance you know the story of Adam and Eve. But do you know the story of Neophrates? Do you know of ancient spaceships? Atlantis and the Metaverde Valley? These stories are only documented in the Holy Bible. Only through careful study of the Holy Bible can you discover God's plan for you. So come, child. Let your cares melt away. Take off your clothes. Put on this robe. Remove your shoes before you have a nervous breakdown. And join me in Box Canyon. Find my newly rebuilt temple. But first, send some nude pics. Let me make sure your temple is ready to be filled with my temple. The Holy Bible is not for all. God's love is only for the 144,000 elect. And these holy soldiers must be pure, strong enough to destroy the Russians, deep enough to handle the holy hog. I imagine this all must be so confusing, but do not worry, do not be afraid. The Holy Bible will clear your mind. The Holy Bible, the only source for the true word of God. Wow, that was fucking powerful. I, I think I might be religious now. I think I think my guiding light might just be the Holy Bible. I, 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 I feel I feel God in my heart a little bit. Anywho, the WFKL, founder of the world cult, has been sucked. What an odd fucking group. I learned some new stuff this week. In the first half of the 20th century, America was full of cults, or at least LA was. Numerous other cults certainly existed elsewhere around the US. I imagine the world has always been full of cults, right? We just don't have records on uh, most of them. 
Did all of the world's current major religions once start out as cults? I have to think they did. I bet they did without a single exception. I bet for as long as there has been society, there have been people who have claimed to know God's will in a way that no one else does or to be God, to have all the answers to the big existential questions I imagine we meet sacks have always asked in some form. Why are we here? How do we get here? Did a creative, sentient, celestial power make us? To what end? Where are they now? What do they want us to do? How do we please them? What reward do they have for those who do please them? How does our ego escape the trappings of mortality? Someone, someone has always been around to say, come with me, child. I have the answers for which thou seeks. And that person, given an unnatural power over others, a person others believe to be a bridge, a conduit from this world to the next, that person's power over their followers, I'm guessing damn near always corrupts them if they weren't already corrupted, right? And now cult members are being used and abused. An old story, a really old story, but the innumerable modern variations of it. Hot damn, I find them so interesting. I found the story of the fountain very interesting. Francis Frank, Herman Pensevik, Krishnaventa, the master. What a deadbeat dad, fucking horndog grifter, a cult leader who often berated his followers, threatening them with punishment or expulsion if they didn't meet his exacting standards. That also happened to people who had come to believe they couldn't survive in the outside world. That was terrifying. He demanded his followers towards the end be chased, even though he followed his lustful urges into all kinds of places, according to whisperings and accusations of former members. Most excused their leader's actions, but not all. Some were not so forgiving to Venta's obnoxious, you know, obvious flaws. David Lackstrom, whose family lived in Box Canyon briefly, later remembered, he felt he did not have to follow the philosophies he put forth. He would do anything to gain attention for himself. Most people there at the time wanted to believe he was the second coming, and they excused his human traits of smoking cigars, gambling, and driving way above the speed limit. That's a weird one. To me, he had a holier-than-thou attitude. I love that he doesn't, you know, uh, later mention the fucking. He's like, you know, he just, he didn't, he did a lot of bad things. You know, he smoked cigarettes and he, he drove too fast. Uh, David is also the member who reported that a, a young female member named Jean Bates said she saw Christian having sex with the mother of a teenage boy who lived at the group. Members and cult leaders uh, and cult leader killers, Peter Kamenoff and Ralph Miller, certainly were not forgiving of Christian's ways, right? They seem to have killed him mostly because he wouldn't admit to fucking their wives. He wouldn't tell his followers who he really was. I'm always surprised that doing that kind of shit doesn't get more of these cult leaders killed. It'd be nice if it did. It would give more of these stories much more satisfying endings. He was a manipulative, controlling, abusive asshole, and that sucks, but at least in the end, he was blown to fucking smithereens. Amen. Now, please, open your beebles to today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Francis Pensevik became Krishna Venta in Utah in 1946, launched the WKFL, founded the world cult in California in 1948. Then, even though Francis's time ended with a literal bang, December 10th, 1958, the cult continued for over a decade more, morphing into another cult that just finally fizzled out recently, it seems. Number two, Krishna Venta, the master, developed one of the strangest backstories we've heard so far in the Suckverse. Krishna claimed to have been born on another planet, Neophrates, 240,000 years ago. Uh, Pensivik also alleges planet was humanity's first home, but when it became uninhabitable to, due to just, you know, getting too close to the sun, he and 35,000 others, maybe 70,000 between the spaceships, uh, you know, made it to Earth. He also held that he was practically every single prophet mentioned in the New and Old Testaments, returning in a new form, uh, but always as the same entity called Christ. Said he teleported to the U.S. <laughs> March 29th, 1932, took over the life of a three-year-old boy, Francis Pensevik, which seems a little bit fucked up, but I guess that kid recently died. The real Francis was nothing more than a petty thief, a criminal who avoided providing or, you know, real responsibility for his children by Lucille Webster for years. Number three, Krishna was blown up along with several other cult members on the night of December 10th, 1958. 
The two culprits slash suicide bombers were dissatisfied members, Ralph Muller, or former members, Ralph and Peter Kamenoff, once devoted followers, they had realized over the years that Krishna was making off with their money and their wives. They tried to report him to authorities, but when that process didn't seem to be moving as quickly as they were hoping for, uh, didn't seem like it would lead to the punishment they felt he deserved, they decided it was time for the cult leader's annihilation. And though the cult lived on, it would never be the same. Members didn't seem to have been exploited the same way going forward. Number four, Krishna Venta was not exactly abnormal for the times in L.A. L.A. has been a hotbed for occult activity since the early 1900s, with many in the first decades of the 20th century remarking upon the high density of self-proclaimed prophets and their followers that roamed Hollywood and the surrounding areas. And number five, new info. Another cult-to-cult connection to this episode. We've already established that the fountain influenced Charles Manson. The Moonies had people go on to join and then die in the People's Temple. Also, one of the master's disciples was a former cult leader, Dorothy Martin. And we've actually mentioned her story before. She led the Seekers a small Illinois-based 1950s UFO cult. Martin told her Chicago-area followers that the United States was going to be destroyed by a massive earthquake and huge tidal wave December 21st, 1954, according to telepathic messages she claimed to receive from aliens. She said, describing the way she would receive the messages, I felt a kind of tingling or numbness in my arm, and my whole arm felt warm right up to the shoulder. Without knowing why, I picked up a pencil and pad that were lying on the table near my bed. My hand began to write in another handwriting. I looked at the handwriting and it was strangely familiar, but I knew it was not my own. I realized somebody else was using my hand. Old automatic writing. The flood warning, she said, like all the others had flowed through her as she wrote it out, her arm possessed by these otherworldly beings. She called the aliens the guardians and said they came from a planet called Clarion. Believers would be saved from destruction by flying saucers that would take them to Clarion. The spaceman's arrival originally scheduled for four o'clock in the afternoon, December 17th, 1954. Believers removed all the metal from their bodies and act considered essential before one might safely board a saucer. (laughs) Then they went into Martin's backyard, scanned the skies. Ten minutes went by and nothing happened. Others started to trickle away. The last believers went back inside by 5.30. In the house, they discussed what went wrong, eventually landing on the explanation that it must have just been a practice session. The Seekers will become the subject of a book called When Prophecy Fails by Leon Fessinger, Fessinger infiltrated the Seekers with the goal of studying their cognitive reactions and coping mechanisms when their beliefs fail, a thought process which Fessinger named cognitive dissonance, a term most of us now know very well. He placed the group's instance of cognitive dissonance at the moment when the aliens did not come on December 17th. Faced with evidence that directly contradicted their beliefs, the group experienced cognitive dissonance, two thoughts that are inconsistent. This is uncomfortable, and the natural instinct is to try to make it go away. People can do that in a variety of ways. By trying to forget about the dissonant things, by changing their minds, or by looking for new information that gets rid of the contradiction. They can also lean into the belief even more. Uh, At midnight, when the 17th became the 18th, Martin claimed to receive a message that the flying saucer was coming right now. Everybody had to get on board or be left behind. For her followers, this new message served as confirmation that they've been right to believe. They scramble outside, they quickly remove metal stuff from their persons, and they wait until 2 a.m. Still no spacemen. The next day, the Guardians reassure Martin with a long message that repeatedly stated, I have never been tardy. I've never kept you waiting. I've never disappointed you in anything. They just misunderstood some messages. So they stick around. Midnight on the 21st, scene plays out again. Still nothing. Members still don't disband. Six o'clock in the evening on Christmas Eve, small group of people still gather on the street outside Dorothy Martin's home in Oak Park, Illinois, singing Christmas carols, waiting to depart the earth. Roughly 200 people come to watch this. Still nothing. The next day, Christmas, someone shows up on Martin's doorstep wanting to join their cult. 
Suspecting this new visitor might be a spaceman, Martin questions him intensely, asks him to tell stories, sits him in a place of honor at the table. No stories come, and the next day Martin gets frustrated that he's not the alien she thought he was, and now, finally, many of the believers leave, though not all. Though details are sketchy about her movements after the Seekers disband, it seems following these several failed prophecies, Dorothy flees first to South America, then returns to the States to uh, join the Fountain of the World, where she takes the name Sister Thedra. After the explosive end of Krishnaventa, Sister Thedra uh, leaves again, settles in Sedona, Arizona, not surprised, where she continues to channel some kind of vision of Jesus and attracts a few followers who may have financially supported her until her death in 1992. Cults, man, they are hard to truly, totally, totally kill. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The fountain cult has been sucked. What a bunch of beeble babble. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for helping making Time Suck this week. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thanks to the Suck Ranger, Tyler C., for producing, directing today. Logan Keith, the Art Warlock, helping with production. Thanks to Elixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app. The Art Warlock, again, for creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com and helping run socials, along with the Suck Ranger and Ryan Handelsman and his team. Thanks to producer Sophie Evans for research. Thanks to the All Seeing Eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page, the Mod Squad, making sure Discord keeps running smooth, and everyone over on the Time Suck and Bad Magic subreddits. Next week on Time Suck, we are talking bananas. Specifically one sexy banana, Miss Chiquita. I'm Chiquita Banana and I've come to say Bananas have to ripen in a certain way And when they're flecked with brown and have a golden hue Bananas taste the best and are the best for you Yes! Uh, Who created Miss Chiquita Banana? How did they make her so sexy? How many revisions did they go through of characters who just weren't sexy enough? How many people every year search out Miss Chiquita Banana porn? Is this leading to an epidemic of fruit-related activity in bedrooms worldwide? No, we're not going to be talking about that. Not much, at least. We're going to be talking about bananas in a way darker than what you might be expecting. In 1928, the Colombian army opened fire on hundreds of banana workers who were on strike for better conditions, killing an, uh, a still disputed number of them. The workers were protesting against the policies of United Fruit, a company that had dominated the banana business for decades at that point. Beginning in the late 19th century, the company quickly turn, uh, took over Central America, going so far as to build their own naval fleet called the Great White Fleet. They scooped up most of the farming land and unsurprisingly for a company with a lot of power and very little regulation, took every opportunity to cut costs and control the supply chain, exploiting the shit out of their workers. They worked around the clock, lived in poor conditions, weren't even paid in actual fucking money, given little opportunity to explore other options. And when workers decided they were fed up with this bullshit, the response to that was less than positive, very much less than positive. The dark history of United Fruit in the 1928 Banana Massacre next week on Time Suck. Right now, let's head over for a few Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. Starting with a quick pronunciation. Correction. Or pronunciation. Correct, correction. From longtime sucker Jason Scovbo, a.k.a. Scooby, who writes, Brigadier, not Brigadier. There's no D in Brigadier. Every milita- military episode ever. That is all. Three out of five stars. Don't change a thing. Scooby. Thank you, Scooby. I do mess that up a lot. Uh, as in always. Uh, there is a D in it still, but just one, not two. No bridge, I guess. Got to drop that first D I keep adding. Right? Focus on the G. Brigadier. Looking at the word now. Uh, yeah, I just completely added a second D in my mind that does not exist. Uh, got a bunch of messages about a missed opportunity in the prospect killer. 
Terry Blair suck. Robert C., a fine bobbert, wrote one of them saying, Hey, you pimple-covered, saggy, chicken-skin duffel bag. You create a character named Rooster, and you didn't bring up another poultry-inspired character, Chicken Joe? I had such high eggs expectations only for them to be cracked and scrambled by this misstep. Would they be friends? Would they fight? Would they compare duffel bags? I was left disappointed by a lack of info. That was a foul play on your part, and I think you owe us, the listeners, an encounter between these two people. Give us the yoke that we are all waiting for. Don't chicken out or try to strut around the issue. I thought you were a comedian. <laughs> I'm now done. Seriously, thank you for the episode. Thanks for being such a clucking good comedian. Overall great guy. Three out of five stars. Wouldn't change a damn thing. Well, fucking Bobbert, I fucked up. I know. I even had a note to make sure that Chicken Joe and the Rooster met in that episode, and I don't know how or why I missed it in the end. So damn it. Uh, I cock-a-doodle-doomed myself. Uh, almost uh, through with stand-up for a bit now as I write this, uh, record this, and hope to find a lot of time this summer to reacquaint myself with some old characters from Suckverse to keep getting missed. Another missed opportunity in the same suck pointed out by Savvy Sack Nathan Fessler, who writes, Hey, Suck Master Flex. There was a guy in the Terry Blair suck named Michael Hunt. Let me repeat a guy. Uh, let me repeat. A guy named Michael Hunt came up in a suck and you glossed over it. As a longtime fan of the show and your comedy, I was sorely disappointed. Please do better. JK, love you long time. Knowledge and Nimrod, Nate. Gosh, Mike Hunt. Mike Hunt. Damn it. It was right there. Just sitting on the D. Waiting for, or on the T, on the D, what the fuck? Waiting for me to swing. Uh, between this and Chicken Joe, you know, I, I don't think I'm gonna do any more episodes. I'm just gonna throw myself off a bridge. Uh, last one, some food for thought. Super thoughtful sucker Ryan Williams writes, Dear Lord Suckington, I'm a huge fan of the suck and scared to death. Some of the best parts of my weekly work commutes are listening to Time Suck and catching an STD. Listen to the Kirtland Cult episode part one and your preemptive clarification on the unreleased episode where you mentioned the Boy Scouts. First off, I appreciate the commitment to clarifying something that could have been overly ambiguous. I don't always agree with you 100% on everything, but you're always genuine and I feel you uh, always come from a place of thoughtfulness. I do try. As for this specific topic, I wanted to offer a slightly different perspective. I became an Eagle Scout at 16 and stayed involved throughout high school in my early college years. I completely understand where you were coming from. It is 100% okay to have some groups be exclusionary for a legitimate purpose. However, I think that the things that the Boy Scouts have traditionally taught and instilled in young men are equally beneficial for young girls in our society. From experience, I have heard, or from experiences, I've heard from many people with Girl Scouts, that organization is severely lacking in this area for a lot of people. Obviously, that's a blanket statement. Pockets within the organization do a great job, but as a whole, seems to be a lot left to be desired. With the rebrand from Boy Scouts to just Scouts BSA, when that happened, it caused a lot of debate among my family who have always been heavily involved. I found a lot of the backlash to be rooted sometimes in basic thinking sexism, not applicable here, of course, but more so just general ignorance of what this meant for the organization. My older brother, who is also an Eagle Scout and still involved with his son in a district leadership position in my hometown area, he clarified some things. The inclusion of girls is on a troop by troop basis, and there are still many all girl troops along with all boy troops. You have the option if you provide a space, uh, you have the option to provide a space just for boys if you desire. What this is more about is filling a social gap for young girls that people are having trouble finding elsewhere. I personally cannot think of any skill learning Boy Scouts that would not also benefit young girls. It's great that they have a place now to do that. To be clear, venturing has been part of BSA and has included girls and boys for quite some time, but is only really available to older teams. There is just an effort to offer the benefits of BSA scouting to a group where there is uh, a need is seen. Again, I love everything you do. Appreciate your thoughts here. Just wanted to give an alternative perspective. Sorry for the long email. Hope I didn't ramble too much. Love the podcast. Looking forward to the conclusion of the saga of Jeffy Boy and Skidmark. Please keep up the suck. Three out of five stars, Ryan. Ryan, thank you for a lot of clarification. Uh, 
there was a lot there I didn't know. I'm amazed at how much I consistently uh, get wrong, actually, when I have a, a hunch, a, make an assumption, toss out an offhand tangential comment in an episode where I've thoroughly researched the main topic, but not the subject of my offhand comment. So many times, yeah, I, I just think I know what I'm talking about and am proven wrong. I didn't know the situation was troop by troop, and that was a big miss. Uh, I love these updates because for any comment I make, overwhelming odds are that some of you know a lot more about the topic than I do. Uh, it'll be an area of expertise for some of you. And when it is yours, please write into Bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com. Yeah, I appreciate it, Ryan. Uh, I'm glad some troops can still, you know, create all boy memories while others, based on what's available in the area, can mix it up for the benefit of all. Sounds like maybe, maybe, I don't know that much about them other than their cookies. The Girl Scouts could uh, update some of their teachings to provide a more com- or, you know, comparable experience in learning life skills. So those kids are getting a, a similar experience. But again, I know very little about Girl Scout curriculum. I hope it's given young girls an experience on par with what you seem to have gotten. And then last thing, 2020, uh, over 92,000 sexual abuse claims filed against the Boy Scouts. Many of them, many years old. Could we maybe start sending people to prison for life or death row when they sexually abuse children from a position of power within an organization that places kids with adults to teach them trust and important other, you know, life skills? Uh, I would, I would really, uh, it would really help make those organizations safer for kids and better for the good mentors that work with them. Thank you, legislators. Uh, I'm sure you'll get it. Uh, I'm sure you'll get right on that. And I don't know what's going on with my mouth today. My brain has all these thoughts. And my mouth will not cooperate. But I think you got the gist. And hail Nimrod, everybody. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to another Time Suck podcast, another Bad Magic production, along with the uh, Scared to Death and the Secret Suck on Patreon. Uh, you know, this week, maybe don't open your Beeble. Maybe don't follow anybody who talks about Beebles or apocalypses or tries to fuck your wife. Instead, just stay home, stay out of trouble, and keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. You can put them in a salad. Grief? No, not yet, my dear. That greenish way you're looking means that you are ripe for cooking. It is normal to get a boner when you watch this cartoon, right? No, no. When you are fully ripe, my dear, those little flakes I mean, we can all agree. Bananas are hot, right? You're most I mean, right? digestible, my friend. Especially Chiquita. Delicious, too, from end to end. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.